When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I'm grateful as always for the privilege of joining you for scripture study. I know this is sacred time, and I want to treat it that way. I've got my shoes off as normal so that we can be walking on holy ground, my sleeves rolled up so we can get to work. Uh, this is actually our last week of work in, the, in Corinth before we start heading north and east back to Asia Minor so we can study with the Galatians next week, which is a beautiful letter. We're, we're starting to get into the smaller, shorter letters. And so no more will we have more than one week in a single place, except when we get to Hebrews. We'll spend a little extra time there. But we have some amazing, amazing epistles ahead with, with challenges across the Mediterranean that are as relevant today as they ever were in the ancient world. And I hope that you feel that today as we finish off 2 Corinthians. It's been, it's been on, this is our fifth week uh, among the Corinthian saints. And that feels like a long time, but Paul had a year and a half there. Okay, And so imagine all that he's learned, all that he's seen, all that he's heard in his absence, and all of the issues that he's trying to resolve from a distance as he writes these letters. The way we ended last week was with godly sorrow as he reflected on the reaction the Corinthian saints had to his Christ to repentance in 1 Corinthians and likely in some other letters as well. And what a blessing that they felt that indignation and that zeal and that revenge and, and that sorrow that allowed them to change, to produce within them a broken heart and a contrite spirit so that re repentance on their, on their part would be real and that forgiveness would come so quickly from the Father of mercies and the Lord of love. From there, we are going to move forward into a different topic as we turn to chapter 8. We'll finish off 2 Corinthians, like I said, and so 8 through 13 is this week's material. And it starts with something that is oh, very down-to-earth, very practical, very pragmatic, because saints in Jerusalem are suffering. There's been a famine there. The saints are poor and struggling and need all the help that they can get. We hear stories like this every time we turn on the news. And whether it's fires in Hawaii, whether it's a hurricane in the Caribbean, whether it is immigration or displacement or, or refugees, there are poor people struggling and suffering the world over. And whether their poverty and struggles are caused by wars and rumors of wars, whether they are by natural disaster uh, or, or famine or pestilence or plague, all of the things that constitute signs of the times in our day, I hope that they pull not only on our heartstrings, but on our purse strings as well. Because so often it takes money to be able to meet their needs. There, there's... Actually, those two strings need to be intertwined. Uh, it needs to be 
our purses and our hearts in such a way that we have a righteous desire to help them. If we can feel the kind of compassion we talked about last week, the kind of empathy, where we are fellow sufferers with them and understand what they're going through, then that heart will then pull the purse right along with it. And we'll have a desire to dig deep and be generous, knowing that we would need just as much generosity from others if we were in those circumstances. That's where the Corinthian saints find themselves now, not in such difficulty themselves, but hearing from Paul and from Titus and these other missionaries, the struggles that the saints are dealing with there back in, in Jerusalem. And Paul and, these, and his fellow companions are trying to gather funds, think about everything we do with fast offerings, think about what we do with humanitarian aid. When I was a little boy, I was probably 10 years old. Yeah, it was 1985. And a newly called apostle, very young, uh, named M. Russell Ballard, was tasked with taking whatever money we could amass to Ethiopia to help with a famine that was taking place there. And this was a, a, a game changer for the church because there were not many church members in Ethiopia at the time. But that didn't matter. There were children of God there that were suffering. And as the Lord's kingdom upon the earth, it was up to us to contribute all that we could. And so President Benson at the time called for a, a, a worldwide, churchwide day of fasting and fast offerings. And whatever money was, was raised that day, Elder Ballard would take to Ethiopia to distribute and, and help the people that were suffering. And I remember as a 10-year-old boy going to, it was, a, it was a midday, it was a midweek fast, not a fast Sunday. And a kind of special occasion, all hands on deck. And I remember as a 10-year-old going to elementary school and sitting there in the, in the cafeteria with no food in front of me. And my friends were like, Jared, what, are, here, have my sandwich. I'm like, no, I'm good. We'll have my fruit stacks. No, I'm not hungry, which was a lie. Uh, but they're like, what, why aren't you eating? Uh, and I didn't know what to say as a 10-year-old, so I just stammered out something about Ethiopia and, and trying to help the people that were starving there. And I don't know if that made sense to my friends, but I felt like I was something, I was part of something bigger than myself. And, and what an amazing thing that in that one day of fasting, the church raised $6 million. It's a lot of money. Uh, in one day, uh, that didn't really cost us anything except a day of feeling hungry ourselves. Feeling for a day what the Ethiopians were feeling day after day after day. And with that empathy in place, with that shared suffering having been experienced, then of course the, the wallets and purses open. And hopefully we can be even more generous than whatever we would have spent on ourselves that day in terms of food. That, in, in my mind, marks the day, the beginning of what has since become a, an ever-increasing and expanding global humanitarian aid effort. It took us a long time to be able to meet our own needs, to get out of debt, first of all, and then to be able to provide for the saints. But to begin getting to a point where we can now look beyond our own borders uh, spiritually, actually not spiritually, ecclesiastically, looking beyond our own church borders, to see our spiritual brothers and sisters of whatever faith or no faith at all, fellow children of God that are in need. And Paul is sensing that deeply for, on behalf of the saints in Jerusalem. And so he's writing to the saints in Corinth. Remember, Corinth is location, location, location. A trade route, uh, a place of prosperity. If, if you can give of your abundance to meet the needs of those that are in lack, 
and want, then what a blessing you will be to them as they spiritually have been a blessing to you. And so with that in mind, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and let's see how this mission of mercy unfolds. Real consecration to the poor. Verse 1 and 2, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, which means we want you to know, we want you to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And Macedonia is further north in Greece. Corinth is there on the southern end in a region called Achaia. But Paul wants them to know about what's been happening among the churches further north. And he describes it this way. How that in a great trial of affliction, and the Corinthian saints know all about that too. So much of what we studied last week at the beginning of 2 Corinthians had to do with adversity and affliction. But you're not alone in that. The saints further north have been tried by great affliction as well. But notice what came as a result. In a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. Now you take all those phrases and wonder how on earth do they all belong in the same sentence? How do you combine great trials of affliction with an abundance of joy? And how on earth do you turn deep poverty into the riches of liberality? Think about that. Yes, this is opposition in all things. Lehi would perk up about that. But to think about what the saints in Macedonia had gone through themselves and what it made of them. Again, this is calm passion, suffering with. This is empathy, suffering in. And that since they themselves had been through trials of affliction, since they knew personally what it felt like to endure deep poverty, no wonder as soon as they were able, and maybe even before they were fully able, they turned those difficulties into motivation to bless others going through similar trials. There's something powerful about consecrating our affliction so that it motivates us to then consecrate our, our time, our talents, our means, anything we can offer to people who are suffering in ways that we once were, and maybe to a degree still are. Deep poverty. Have we ever felt that? Have we ever been to a place? Missions are amazing along these lines, especially if you serve in a third world country, a developing nation, to, to, feel, to see real poverty and to come to, to know and love the people that are enduring it and just wanting to bless them in any way that you can. To take the shirt off your back if you could, to give them all that you are able. And these Macedonian saints, having experienced deep poverty, it's now abounding to the riches of their liberality. So liberal that they want to give all that they can to the suffering saints there in Jerusalem. And Paul is hoping that by dropping these hints about the saints in Macedonia, the saints in Corinth will have a desire to follow suit. A little friendly competition, perhaps. I always saw this around Thanksgiving time where the University of Utah and BYU would have competitions as far as how much food can you donate to the Utah Food Bank. That's my kind of rivalry. Okay? It's going to bless as we, as we provoke one another to additional generosity. That's what Paul is getting at here. In verse 3 and 4, he says, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. 
Now, in a later letter, Paul will talk about the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And fellowship is something he's tried to establish within every branch and between every branch of the church. That we are fellow citizens with the saints, he'll say in a later, in a later letter. That we are one with one another. And if we're going to overcome the divisions that are tearing the Corinthian church apart, can we become one, one heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us or any other branch of the church? We're trying to establish Zion here, and that's how the Lord defines it. And so here, it's not just the fellowship of suffering. We've all been in that, in that as well. And if that plants within us a desire to be more generous to others, to turn our suffering into someone else's joy and our poverty into someone else's provisions, then, then the fellowship of suffering can now become a fellowship of ministering to one another. We are all in this thing together. But the way Paul says it in that verse is so powerful. Again, trying to provoke the Corinthian saints into, into matching the generosity of the Macedonians. Notice how he put it. It was to their power, but also beyond their power. They were generous to the point that it began to hurt. That's how C.S. Lewis described real charity. If it doesn't affect us at all, then, well, it wasn't really a sacrifice. And yet, if there are certain things we cannot do for ourselves, because we've been overly generous to others, and overly, keep that in quotes, Remember, uh, King Benjamin warned about this. Once you truly see what a beggar you are before God and how generous, let me talk about the, the riches of his liberality, that he has poured out blessings upon us more than we deserve. Once we realize how generous God has been with us, we tend to be more than generous with others to the point that, that King Benjamin had to rein them in a bit. Don't run faster than you have strength was the advice he gave to people in the context of charity, of generosity. Imagine that. Yeah, if, you, if the bishop had to say, you know what, I'm, re I'm refunding some of your fast offerings because I don't want you to get in debt as you're trying to help other people. Yeah, that's, that's a desire. That's going above and beyond the call of duty. And these Corinthian saints are, are crossing that line in beautifully generous ways. To their power, beyond their power. When he said they were willing of themselves, there was no arm twisting there in Macedonia. As soon as they heard what the Jerusalem saints were suffering, they reached into their pockets and they reached deep. They checked the couch cushions. They, 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 they limited their own expenditures on self. Where can I save so that I can give more? And it was all it all came from a very willing place within them, willing of themselves. When it says they prayed us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift, again, that suggests the level of their generosity. So surprising to the missionaries that the missionaries were like, no, 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 don't, you can't give that much. You need to, to save more for yourselves. And they're like, no, I insist. And the missionaries are like, no, we insist. And the Macedonian saints, no, we insist. I mean, have you ever been in that, the... The back and forth of insisting, and the, finally the person who, who surrenders. Okay, you win. You can be the one that, that foots the bill. You can be the one that is, that is more generous here. And these Macedonian saints insisted that the missionaries receive the gift. 
They, they wanted to be part of the fellowship of the ministering. We can't join with you on the journey to Jerusalem. But please take our money as a way of taking our heart with you because our hearts go out to those who are suffering there. The next time you are making, you're paying your tithing and making donations, I hope that we can keep the news on as we're writing, our, writing out our check, that we can understand what is going on in a world full of fellow sufferers, and that we might join the Lord in a fellowship of ministry to meet their needs. In verse 5 through 7, Paul says, This they did, those wonderful Macedonian saints, not as we hoped. And a better way to say that is even more than we had hoped. I mean, they exceeded our expectations, our wildest imaginations. No wonder the insistence on their part. No wonder us going, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to give that much. This is beyond your power. They didn't care, okay? Uh, more than we had hoped. But first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now think about the order there. This goes back to what I said about heartstrings and purse strings. And the first thing they offered was their heart. They first gave their own selves to the Lord. How's that for personal consecration? They gave themselves unto us, the apostles are saying. It was all the will of God that they would do this. But these are specific actions as an outgrowth of their covenant commitment to God. In fact, to the two great commandments. I love God. There's them giving themselves to the Lord. And I love my neighbor. That's giving themselves to the apostles and to the people to whom the apostles will give their all. Okay? You remember the verse in, in Jacob when he says, Before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them. For ye will seek them with the intent to do good. And notice it was ye shall, not thou shalt. It was not a commandment, it was a natural result. Once you have obtained a hope in Christ, God can trust you with riches. You've, you've outsmarted the pride cycle, and your prosperity will not lead to pride and destruction. It will lead to increased generosity on your part. I have more to consecrate. God has blessed me. This is, this is coveting earnestly the best gifts, whether temporal or spiritual. And having progressed in those areas, I have more to put into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. I can bless more people this way. And that's exactly what's happening here. They first gave themselves to the Lord. And after they had obtained that hope in Christ, God could trust them with temporal blessings because he knew what they would do with them. They would seek them with the intent to do good, which is exactly what the Macedonian saints are doing. Paul goes on, Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. I mean, Titus has been a wonderful junior companion to Paul. Uh, Titus had brought news to Paul about how things are going in, in Corinth, and he's going to go back and, and assist in gathering up the donations of the saints that are there. And he's started that work. Well, keep going with it. Okay, Titus, continue. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. 
Such beautiful commendation on the part of Paul. Yes, he was, spoke strongly in 1 Corinthians and cried repentance, but just as he was congratulating them for their godly sorrow, now he's congratulating them for their godly abundance, abounding in so many wonderful gifts. Your utterance, your knowledge, that's what the Corinthians were known for from the very beginning, right? Uh, a place of incredible rhetoric, uh, of worldly wisdom, of, of intellectualism, which is both a gift and a curse simultaneously. They abounded in those things. They also abounded in faith and diligence. So there's faith and works coming together in beautiful ways. Well, you've abounded in your love for us as apostles. Well, how about your love for saints you have never seen or met? But to bless them, will you abound in this grace, which suggests it's a gift from God, not just a gift from these saints? Will you abound in this gift as well? I, I picture the, a, a congregation of rich young rulers there in Corinth. And they've been richly blessed by God. They have been abundant in, in the spiritual gifts that the Lord has blessed them with. You think of the rich young ruler, and I've been keeping these commandments from my youth up. I have abounded in diligence and, and work and, and faith and all of these things. Wonderful. Well, one thing thou lackest, will you abound in this grace as well? Sadly, the rich young ruler was un unable to. Well, how about you, Corinthian saints? Will you be more generous than he? Will you be as generous as your Macedonian brothers and sisters? Will you be as generous with others as God has been with you? Please dig deep. In verse 8 and 9, Paul admits, I speak not by commandment. So this is not being forced upon you. Remember back in verse 3, the Macedonian saints were willing of themselves. This can't be I me mean, twisting your arm. I'm not coming around as a collection agency. You have to pay up, fork it over for the saints in Jerusalem. No, I'm not speaking by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others. So the whole reason I'm bringing this up is just because the Macedonian saints have been so generous. It gave me an occasion. Their forwardness, their generosity, their, their willing desire to be a blessing to others. Yeah, it's just, it's provided me a measuring stick. And if you want to measure up to that, if you want to outdo them, this is Christ-like competition. Okay, we're going to see who can consecrate oh, most generously. And this forwardness of others is giving me an occasion or giving you an opportunity to, to bless others as well. It's also giving you a chance, he says, to prove the sincerity of your love, which is such a powerful phrase. I, I know you love people. I know that love is sincere. But to have an opportunity to give proof of that, to not just say it, but to show it by contributing, there's a great story in church history where someone had gone through something difficult and, ever, and ever, the news was spreading and Joseph Smith was surrounded by some other saints that were like, oh, wow, that's really too bad. That's really sad. And everyone was expressing their sorrow on behalf of this poor, afflicted fellow saint. And Joseph's looking around and he finally reaches into his wallet and pulls out $5 and says, well, I'm sorry too, but I'm sorry to the tune of $5. <laughs> How about you? And by his forwardness, it gave an occasion to his fellow saints to go, okay, yeah, it's not enough just to go, wow, it's really too bad. But man, if it were me, I would want people not just to feel sorry for me, but to show that sorrow 
not fellowship of suffering, with a fellowship of ministry. Is there anything you can do to help? Okay? I mean, if you don't, then, then I'll take the sorrow. I'll take the compassion. But if you have an opportunity to add your, well, to add charity to your charity. Remember when Paul wrestled with that in 1 Corinthians 13? He flipped, he had a different order then. Then it was, if you give all your goods to feed the poor, but don't have charity. In other words, if you give charity that's not motivated by charity, then it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really count. But flip it around, and I wonder if the same is true. Let's say you do have the pure love of Christ. Wonderful. I'm not doubting the sincerity of your love, Paul is saying to the Corinthians. But if you have that type of charity, and the opportunity to embody it in giving of your temporal blessings to others who need them, oh, then that's, that's both kinds of charity coming together in magnificent ways. If you're giving charity, I sure hope you have charity behind it as your motivation. But if you are motivated by the pure love of Christ, then I hope that charity is made manifest in the charity you give to those around you. Okay? Now, from there he'll say to these wonderful saints, by way of example, I mean, you've seen the example of the Macedonians. Well, let me raise it infinitely and give you an even greater example to follow. In verse 9, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How's that for the greatest example that's ever lived? That though he was rich, and we've seen Paul talk about Christ's riches, rich in mercy, rich in goodness, the riches of his grace. But though Christ was rich in all of those things, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Which takes us back to the role reversal that lies at the heart of the atonement and condescension of Christ. Remember last week we connected condescension with compassion. And for Christ who was rich in glory, premortally, to empty himself of that, to be the word made flesh, to come down and dwell among us and among the least of those his brothers and sisters. Think about that. The son of almighty God lying in a manger, walking the dusty streets of Jerusalem or the hillsides of Galilee, and out of his infinite wealth to become poor. He was the rich young ruler and nothing he lacked. And he poured out all that he had. He opened the windows of heaven and poured himself out in hopes that we would have room to receive him and receive from him an example worth following for the rest of our lives. Through his poverty, he makes us rich. And will we impoverish ourselves a little so that other people can gain a lot? I'm speaking to those of us in, in the first world, as they call it. And are there things that we can decide? Can we look over our budget and think, maybe I am spending a little too much on myself. This goes back to the parable of the broken hose that I've shared before. Uh, before I start filling my Olympic-sized swimming pool, should I turn my hose on my neighbor's lawn since their grass is looking pretty dry?
Okay. Now, verse 10 through 12, herein I give my advice. And that's all it is. Remember, he's not speaking by way of commandment, but this is incredibly good counsel. Here's my advice. For this is expedient for you who have begun before, not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. And what he's saying here is, you know, last year when I first brought this up, you were the very first people who wanted to give. In fact, you were the very first people who actually started giving. But are you still passing around the plate and just collecting, collecting, collecting? We need to get the water to the end of the rope. We need to, to finish the contribution and complete the collection and bring this, this generosity to the people of Jerusalem so they can actually live on it. Okay? The way he puts it next is so powerful. If you started this, you, begun be, you began before, now therefore perform the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to will, so your heart was in the right place, the spirit was willing, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. With that last line, it's this sense of, no, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> but everything leading up to it was, but the thought, don't leave it at the thought. Don't end it there. If there's any way to convert thought into action, to convert desire into deed, then please, by all means, do it. And, and I, I love this sense of urgency on Paul's part, where it's, I, I've been among you. I provided for myself. I was making tents there with, with Aquila and Priscilla. But to see your temporal wealth, your material means, and the generosity that was made manifest as you began to make a collection for the suffering poor. I, I'm so grateful. I'm not saying anything negative about that. It was a wonderful start. Can we finish? Can we actually do this now? Okay, perform the doing of it. So if I were to paraphrase Paul here, I would say, don't just dream, do. Don't just plan, perform. Don't just wish, work. And don't just sympathize, serve. We can have the greatest intentions of all time. But if our intentions do not convert into actions, this is what James will say about faith without works is dead. You can have all the faith in the world and all the hope for someone and all the charity, but until it's converted into actual action, <laughs> talk is cheap. Let's move forward. Will they? Let's see. Now, verse 13, as if reading their mind, and maybe this is what's their cause of their hesitation, he says, For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. I mean, can you imagine all the cries of, That's not fair! It's not fair! I can, I can picture children saying such a thing. Why do I have to give? I earn these things. I'm now being burdened with not only my needs, temporal, but also the temporal needs of other people in some other place. Well, why didn't they just work and earn money themselves? Oh, careful. But Paul is trying to be careful himself. I'm not trying to ease others at your expense. He says, but by an equality, that's what I'm aiming for. Okay, one heart, one mind, no poor among us. And then notice this, that now at this time, so keep in mind how specific Paul is being regarding time. It's right now. It's at this time. 
your abundance may be a supply for their want. But then flip around the pronouns. Right now, at this time, it's your abundance and their want. But wait a while, and that could change. He says that their abundance, now we've switched the pronoun, also may be a supply for your want. Again, that there may be equality. As it is written, and here he's going to quote Exodus 16, He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. How's that for equality? God has met our every need. And notice, it's God who met them. Because guess what Exodus 16 is talking about? The, the context of the verse of Scripture that Paul just used? It's the giving of the manna to the Israelites in the wilderness. This was not something they earned on their own. They, they weren't working for it in ways that they could take all the credit. No, this was a miracle every morning. This was God providing for their temporal needs. And he adjusted things. He distributed it according to the needs of each individual. If you need more, then gather more, and your needs will be met. If you, get, if you need less, then gather less. There will be an equality here. And there won't be some kind of surplus to trying to amass the manna. No, it's going to rot before you can use it on yourself. It's, 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 think about, I, I just love what, what Paul is doing. As his mind so quickly went to Old Testament scripture, and the place it went for this, for this discussion, oh, there's no better place to ponder. But go back to what he'd said at the beginning. You can bless them today. Who knows, but they might be the ones blessing you tomorrow. Remember last year in the Old Testament, we saw this early on in the days of Abraham, for example, that hospitality was an absolutely essential priority in the ancient Middle East. I mean, if you're a nomad, if you're living in the desert and, and you need someone to help you, if, if they will not open their hearts and their homes to you, if they will not provide food or water, you will die in the desert. And if you're going to be that reliant upon someone else, then you better be equally generous whenever someone else comes relying on you. I remember my, when I was a teenager, well, late, late teen, uh, early young adult, I just got my mission call, I was headed out, and there had been some economic challenges in our family. And my dad was in the state presidency at the time and just serving as much as he possibly could. And as, that's church service. As far as work, things were rough. There had been an earthquake in California and the company my dad worked for was really struggling to pay the bills and pay their employees, including my dad. And we kind of just got by on mom's uh, teaching salary and my little brother's uh, paper route. I was on my mission at the time and didn't know just how bad things had gotten at home economically. But thankfully, there were other people in our ward who did know, or at least guessed, how hard it might be for my family with two missionaries out serving and some tough economics at home. My, our ward bishop called my dad in and said, President Halverson, I just wanted to report a little bit on the Valencia First Ward. I think if the Lord asked us to live the, the law of consecration 
and I know he does in the temple, but the way it was lived back in the day, I think our ward would be ready for it. And my dad was like, wow, that's impressive, Bishop. That, that's, that's good to know. And felt kind of, is this just a, a report from the bishop to the member of the stake presidency on the, the spiritual health of, of the ward he was presiding over? Well, it was more personal than that. That was just lead-in. As the bishop said to my dad, uh, as a member of our ward uh, and as your, as your bishop, I've just been concerned for you and I know that others have been as well. And they want to keep their generosity anonymous. But I just needed you to know that there have been some very kind people in our ward that have made some contributions to help your family uh, cover the, need, the, the financial needs of your missionary children, your son in Puerto Rico and your daughter in Venezuela. And I was blown away when my dad told me that. I served, I always tried to serve diligently, but I served with a little more consecration myself, knowing that others had consecrated to help, to help me be out there. There's something beautiful about what Paul is, is suggesting here. And no wonder the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants that all things are spiritual unto me, including the so-called temporal. In some ways, is this what this chapter is all about? Is just, we need, are we passing around the plate and increase your fast offerings? Oh, the Lord sees so much more here than just that. He's reaching into the heart, not the wallet, wanting to see what's there. In fact, speaking of God, Paul says in verse 16, but thanks be to God. Ultimately, the generosity comes from him because he plants within us the gift of charity. He makes us desire to give what we have, and he gives us the means to be able to give it to others. So thanks be to God which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. Here's Paul's gratitude for his junior companion. I love that guy. Titus, what an amazing soul. But God placed within him this earnest care. God touched Titus's heart. No wonder he's been serving so diligently among you. I pray God will put similar care in your hearts for the people we're trying to serve in Jerusalem. Now, speaking of Titus, Paul goes on, For indeed he accepted the exhortation, but being more forward of his own accord, he went unto you. So just like the Macedonian saints going above and beyond and doing it willingly, Titus is the same, <laughs> guilty as charged, right? Doing everything he possibly can and not having to be told the, the he that is compelled in all things, the same as a slothful and not a wise servant. Well, that doesn't describe Titus at all. He was anything but slothful, anything but unwise. He accepts the exhortation. He moves forward. He does it of his own accord. And he went unto you, Corinthian saints, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Now, we don't know who this brother is. Some early church fathers thought it might be Luke. Uh, as one of the traveling companions of Paul, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke who wrote the book of Acts. It's a possibility, but we don't have any evidence for it or against it. So let's just leave it the way Paul said it. It's just some brother, some unnamed brother. But what a brother he was, a true brother who wanted to be his brother's keeper. Remember what Paul said, his praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So maybe that's why he doesn't even need to name him, because everywhere he's been, people just love this guy. They praise him. Every church has been blessed wherever he's gone. And not that only, Paul continues, 
but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. So that's why this good brother is going there with Titus. Okay? He was chosen of the churches to do so. And he's coming to give you a chance to declare your ready mind. So <laughs> start declaring. Give proof of the love that is in you. Verse 20, avoiding this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. Which is an interesting thing to, to think about. How would they be blamed? Well, on the one hand, well, let's stick with the temporal. No wonder you need multiple people. You're going to have Titus. You're going to have this other brother. I don't want to put all the, the funds in one person's hands. In case something happens, I don't want anyone to blame us that their generosity didn't actually bless the people of Jerusalem as intended. Uh, we do this in, in all transactions in the church. Anytime that uh, tithing money is being, is being counted, is being de uh, deposited in the bank, there's always more than one person. And so to make sure that we're, we're covering ourselves so there is no blame. But take it up a notch and include yourself. It's one thing not to blame the bishopric or the ward financial clerk. But what about blaming ourselves? Would someone else blame me for the use or misuse of the abundance God has given me? Would there be those that second guess the way I spend my money because I'm not helping others? That I am, again, turning the, the, the hose only on my own lawn and not on the lawns all around me. Okay? So be careful about that blame. Paul didn't want any of his fellow workers to be blamed. So the advice he gives, providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. It's like what Joseph Smith said on the way to Carthage. I have a conscience void of offense toward God and all men. Paul feels the same. So if God's watching, if men are watching, oh, be honest. Provide for honest things and that you'll never be blamed. And we have sent with them our brother, Paul continues, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. They actually did the same thing in the early church. And there are some interesting revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants that deal with this temporal aspect. That if one person is going to be carrying money to go print the revelations, for example, make sure they don't travel alone. Let's provide for honest things. Let's allow people to prove their own diligence and, and their, their superabundant diligence. Now much more diligent, Paul says. I want you to have confidence in each other that what you are giving to the Lord is going to bless people all around you. Now verse 23 and 24, he then ends this part of the letter. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you. Or our brethren be inquired of. They are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. How's that for vouching for your companions? Partners, fellow helpers, the glory of Christ. These people can be trusted with your generosity. Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Oh, please, please make us proud. 
Prove us right. We have been bragging about you. I mean, when when the Macedonian saints were coming through out of their generosity, I kept thinking to myself, oh yeah, but just wait for the Corinthians. I mean, they started all they started first, and they've been generous, and it just hasn't it hasn't been sent yet. But I can only imagine how generous they've become to this point. And here Paul is like, please don't prove me wrong. Okay? Prove yourself. Prove your love. And give evidence of the, the kind of reputation I've been bragging to people about. Please do. Now, verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9. Paul will continue. Some scholars have even wondered, is this another letter because it seems repetitive based on what he just said in chapter 8? Perhaps. Or is it just, again, such an important thing that Paul is going to continue hammering it home? Well, he does begin in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1, for as touching the ministering to the saints, so we're still on that subject, it is superfluous for me to write to you. So superfluous means it's unnecessary. It's over, uh, it's over the top because I know you already know these things. Again, maybe, maybe he doesn't need to give a chapter 9 based on what he's already said in chapter 8. Well, I'm glad he does because of some of the things that he says here. He explains himself, For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, so, like I said in the, in the previous chapter, I was bragging to you, or bragging about you to the Macedonians. Maybe that was why they were so generous. They were trying to keep up with you. Well, now it's your turn to keep up with them. That over a year before, the saints down south in Achaia, where Corinth was, have been generous and preparing a contribution to the suffering saints. So, I, I probably don't need to repeat myself and say it all over again. But here we are. He says, your zeal hath provoked very many. And that's that righteous Christ-like competition. Okay, Who can be more generous of these two? Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we not say ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Now, Let's unpack what he just said there, because it's tricky the way it's translated. He is giving the Corinthians the benefit of the doubt. In fact, there was no doubt on his mind. You started strong. In fact, you were setting such a powerful example that it got the Macedonians going. But again, if that was just a start on your part, and you haven't finished, the spirit was willing, but the flesh isn't done, okay? So if, if you haven't yet performed the doing of it, though the desire has long been there, then please get yourself ready to follow through and to actually go on this. Because if somebody from Macedonia came down and, and kind of got news on the street here in Corinth and said, wait, wait, you guys didn't give anything to, to the Jerusalemites? Everything, you guys were all talk and no action? All desire and no deed? Hmm, that's, that's embarrassing. What a shame. And that's what Paul is warning them about. We would be ashamed. I'm not saying you would need to be ashamed because I know you've been working on this. He's, again, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But I, I would hate for me to be ashamed. Like, oh, Paul, you've been, you've been talking them up. But they don't deserve that kind of commendation. So what Paul is, is helping them see is let's follow through just, I'll put it this way, just be ready, 
if a Macedonian shows up, shows up. I've been telling them about you, and I hope you live up to your reputation. What I actually love about this, and we'll see some more of this in this chapter, Paul is trying to set up the Corinthians for success. Uh, have you ever oh, told somebody about someone? Let's, let's put it this way. Oh, I've got a friend. You're, you're traveling through such and such a town? Oh, I've got a friend there or a family member there. And they, would, they are the most hospitable, generous, kind-hearted people ever. If you ever need a place to stay when you're passing through such and such a town, oh, just call me and I'll give you the address and just head on over. Now, that's wonderful praise. And I'm sure that your friend or family member there in that city totally deserves it. But can you imagine them getting a knock on the door in the middle of the night and total strangers are showing up? And they're like, hi, we're so-and-so. We're friends of your friend or family member. And we need a place to stay. And they said, your house is, your door is always open. Now, imagine uh, their, their spirit is willing, their heart's in the right place. But they had no clue that you were about to, you were going to knock on their door that night. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll make it work somehow. Um, can, can you give us a second? And they're, they're, there's some cleanup to do. And we've got to change the bed sheets and, and kick a child out of their room to make room for the, for the visitors. And we're totally willing to do it. Their heart is as good as gold. But man, I really would have loved a little advance notice. So I could have calmly prepared for all of this. Because right now, yeah, my heart's in the right place, but there's a part of it that's a little frustrated with my, my sibling or my friend that set this all up without telling us. Does that make sense? I think if we can just give people a heads up, they're on their way, or, hey, I told so-and-so, is this, would this work for you? Or I'm going to be in such and such, a, a, I'm going to be in your area in a couple of weeks. Is there any way that, just give them some advance notice for crying out loud. And that's what Paul is giving them here, some advanced notice. It gives them a chance to live up to expectations, okay? Live up to the reputation that they do deserve. Well, verse 5, Paul goes on, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty. So again, this is before the Macedonians are going to come down. I'm giving you time to prepare so you can be as generous as everyone knows you to be. You can make up beforehand your bounty. And by the way, the Greek word for bounty there is eulogia. Then that's where we get the word eulogy. Think about that. A blessing, a gift, something you say about a person who has passed on. The eulogy you give. Well, I hope that's prepared for beforehand. I hope that you have been given the opportunity to really reflect on the life of the recently departed so you can give that eulogy. The you, by the way, is the Greek prefix for good, and logi comes from logos, that word made flesh. And so a eulogy is such a beautiful Greek word. And this bounty, this eulogy that you're giving, I'm trying to Tell you in advance so you can get ready to give it, to prepare this eulogy, to be prepare beforehand your bounty. Whereof ye had noticed before, so again, all this advanced planning, give them time to, to prepare themselves, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty, 
eulogy again, and not as of covetousness. And what he's getting at there is if I give you some advanced time, then you can prepare yourself and be in the right spirit when the opportunity to give actually arrives. There, there's not grumbling like, ah, I, of course we're going to open our homes to you. That, I, I love to do that, but I, mm, my punk brother of mine didn't tell me that you were on your way. I wish you could have called in advance. Because now I'm doing it just like I would otherwise, but I'm doing it mm, a little grudgingly. Not as, not as charitably on the inside as I would like. I'm kind of grumbling under my breath at this. And that's what he gets at with his word, that word covetousness at the end. If, you, if I only knew in advance, if I knew what was being asked of me, and I could put my affairs in order and get things ready. Honestly, this is important when, when we're asking someone else for help. Instead of just assuming that they can drop everything in that moment and, and then why aren't you coming through for me? It's, here's some things I'm going through and I could really use your assistance, but time is not of the essence right now. I'm get, trying to give you the heads up so you can prepare yourself. But I could really use some assistance. It's nice when you get an email from the Elders Quorum president and they say so-and-so is moving in a couple of weeks and so put it on your calendar and this is what we're going to need. And we can rally the troops and get all hands on deck. As opposed to a last-second cry for help. I'm moving today. Can you come and help? And I've already got so much on my schedule and I, I can't just drop it all and squeeze it in. Or think about this in terms of priesthood leaders or Relief Society leaders that are giving callings and making assignments. We can do such a better job of setting people up for success if we'll start a little earlier in the planning process. If we'll let them know beforehand. If we'll try to understand where they're coming from and what they're up against and where they are in life and the situation they... You get this? I've talked before, I think, I think during our Doctrine and Covenants year of study, about exploratory interviews that we always did in our bishoprics. Where, rather than sit down and say, oh, here's the calling, and will you accept it? And they're blindsided and like, what? I, 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 I know I'm not supposed to say no, but I have no idea how I'm going to be able to pull this off. As opposed to an exploratory interview, which takes longer, but it's such a blessing to the people that you're asking to serve. To be able to say, you know what, we've been thinking about you, and we've been thinking about this calling, and we're, I'm not here to extend it officially, so don't feel any pressure to say yes. I'm not asking, so you can't say yes. I'm exploring. I'm doing my homework. I'm studying it out beforehand. And I'm, I just want to lay out my cards on the table and let you know that we really feel, and we've been praying about it, that your skill set or your attributes would be so perfect in this calling. We just don't know everything else that's on your plate. And so this is, we're seeking information to round out our inspiration. And maybe at the end of this interview, you'll feel good about it, and so will I, and we'll make it official. Or maybe with the information you give me, I'll realize, oh, well, yeah, we didn't know about that. And so when we asked the Lord if you were good for this calling, <laughs> the Lord had to say, yeah, because yeah, you really would be. But we didn't ask him about timing. We didn't ask him about if you'd be able to do that at this time. We just asked him if you'd be good. And yeah, you would be good, but not now. So thank you 
uh, you're not saying no to a calling because I am not offering it. I'm not extending it to you. Or the other possibility, thank you for that information. I need to go back and do a little more homework with the bishopric. Uh, and we, well, let's set up another interview and I'll, I'll let you know what we feel. We may still move forward with it, even though, now, even though you've got so much on your plate. But I just, this way you know you've been heard and seen. And we're not extending this calling blindly or ignorantly. Okay? We can do a lot better than we've done along those lines. And I love that Paul is, is doing that for these Corinthian saints. I, I just, I want you to be a cheerful giver. And I think people would be if we were a little more wise in the ways that we invite them and prepare them. Okay? There's, there's a big... I mean, even the church does that with mission presidents and, and mission leaders. It's a ways out. So you can get your affairs in order. It's not just, hey, can you drop things and run? Okay? And then he says something that I absolutely love in verse 6 and 7. Paul says, but this I say... So here's this overarching principle that is motivating the, the practical advice that I'm giving you as far as this collection plate. This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And that bountifully, again, comes from the Greek word eulogia. Here's the real eulogy you can give. Here's the real blessing, the gift, the good word that you can give to other people. Do it as bountifully as you possibly can. And then he says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. We'll talk about a beautiful overarching principle. In some ways, all the specifics that we've been dealing with so far falls under that, that two-verse heading. A cheerful giver. God loves a giver, yes. But if you're giving without the right motivation behind it, you might as well have held back the gift. Uh, don't, though. I mean, please give it anyway, okay? Uh, but, but give in such a way, hopefully, that your heart catches up and your motives begin to be purified with time. But it's not just what you're giving. It's how you're giving it. Remember Jesus in the Mark account of the, of the widow with her might? That he, as he sat across from the temple treasury, he wasn't just seeing how much people gave. The Mark account says he was watching to see how they gave. The how much was almost beside the point. And that poor widow, if she had done it grudgingly, then I, I don't think the Lord would have singled her out for commendation. It's not that she gave, it's not just that she gave all that she had. It's that she gave her heart right along with it. Her heart was in the right place, cheerfully giving. Section 64 of the Doctrine and Covenants is another great place to study this. Uh, because the Lord seeks the mind and a willing heart. How are you going to serve? With what kind of attitude? Is it just of necessity? Oh, I have to. Another day on the chain gang. Is it grudgingly, or is it cheerfully and bountifully? On my office wall, I will often put up oh, almost mantras, but they're usually scriptural phrases, 
just something to <laughs> jolt me back into focus and attention if I'm starting to, to lose focus there in the office. And one of those little scriptural signs, simply two words, but this is the verse that it comes from, says, so bountifully. It comes from that phrase, he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. And so for me, when it comes to planting seeds, when it comes to reaching out to students that haven't been coming to institute, for example, or just trying to make a difference in people's lives, it's an amazing motto to follow. So bountifully. And the unspoken promise there is that God will reward you bountifully for those efforts. Scatter seed as widely as you can. You'll be amazed at the harvest. Now, verse 8 through 10, Paul then says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Can you sense the abundance into that in that verse? That the generosity of God, he makes his grace abound. It is super abundant. To the point that, and then notice all these words, ye, always having all sufficiency in all things. I mean, talk about nothing lacking. You've got everything you've ever needed and you always have. And because of that, you yourself can abound in every good work. God pours it into you and overflows. So, of course, you can pour it out to other people. As it is written, and so here's Paul mining the depths of the Old Testament to find another great verse to illustrate it. Before it was to Exodus, now it's to the Psalms. Psalm 112, verse 9, He hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. You see that? It never runs out. And yet, here you are dispersing. Here you are giving. Oh, but since you are giving, you've unkinked the hose, of course the Lord is going to keep sending living water through it. Okay? Your righteousness remaineth forever. Now, he that ministereth seed to the sower both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. What I love about these verses is that they suggest an abundance mentality rather than a scarcity mindset. I think too often if we're under this misunderstanding of scarcity, then we're trying to hoard the resources to ourselves because it's going to run out and there won't be enough to meet my needs, let alone anyone else's. Whereas if it's an abundance mindset, well, of course I can share. It just keeps on coming. I don't need all of this. My needs are more than met. So please let me meet yours. In fact, I can come at a level of self-sacrifice because I know the Lord more than makes it up to me. And so, of course, His grace will abound. Why can't I abound in my generosity to others? The way that Paul put it in that latter verse about ministering seed to the sower, he's going to keep giving you more seed to plant. And guess what seeds do? They grow. They grow into grain with more kernels within it. They grow into trees that provide fruit with yet more seeds within. Talk about abundance. This is the growth mindset. This is the Lord giving and giving and giving gifts that keep on giving. That's what an endowment means. And everything the Lord endows us with is meant to provide not just our daily bread, day by day by day, but even the seed to produce 
yet additional harvests. Okay, does that make sense? It's beautiful the way Paul is, is putting all of this. So sow your seed. Increase your fruit. The Lord wants you to have more than enough so that you can give. So verse 11, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. Again, he gets the credit every time. It's his bounty that is allowing you to be bountiful to others. It's the riches of his grace that are allowing you to give of your riches. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. You see, your service to others helps them live both of the two great commandments too. Gratitude to God, from whom all blessings flow, but also gratitude to your fellow men and women who are turning that flow in your direction. Now, there's many thanksgivings unto God. And then he finishes the subject in verse 13 through 15. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, and another translation for experiment could be proof. So by the proof of this ministration, remember you're trying to prove your, the sincerity of your love. And as you join in the fellowship of the ministry, you've, the proof's in that pudding. Okay, here's the experiment, and if you pass, you now have evidence of your generosity, of your goodness, of your love. The experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ. I mean, your professed subjection, your so-called subjection, is Paul casting doubt? No. But if anyone else were, if they wondered, are the, are the Corinthian saints really as generous as Paul says? Are they, have they really subjected themselves, submitted themselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has it changed them in the way that the Christians say the gospel does? Have they been transformed? Well, let's run an experiment. Let's make them aware of people in need and see what they do. How's that for an experiment? Well, pass the test, my friends. Prove us right so that people will not just think highly of you, but more importantly, glorify God who is changing your heart and making you this generous. You understand? I love the, the, how Paul is putting it here. Okay? Your professed subjection to the gospel, now show it's real. It's, it's heartfelt. It's down deep. And for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. There's another chance for you to prove this, just how liberal you will be. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Oh, they're praying. They're longing. They, they hope that God is being gracious to you so that you can be gracious to them. And God is. <laughs> that, that is the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, the generous God of grace. So no wonder Paul says in concluding this, this thought, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. An unspeakable one. It's one that can't be described. It can't be quantified. Good luck to the accountants out there. <laughs> How do you weigh and measure a consecrated heart? 
when somebody, they're not just professing their Christianity. They're proving it every chance they get. And what a gift they are to the world from a God of such generosity. Oh, unspeakable gifts. And who deserves the ultimate credit and gratitude? Well, God himself. Uh, it's one thing to have people be so impressed with you. Forget that. It's another thing for people to be impressed with God's amazing grace. Well, Paul is going to continue his glory in, in the next chapter. And in chapter 10, oh, there, there's some counsel here. There's some wonderful advice, but there's also just ongoing praise of God from the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 1, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. Now, interesting description of Paul here, and he's admitted it himself. When I'm not around, oh, I'm, I'm bold. I can write things in letters that I don't know if I'd ever say to your face. And that, is, again, is one of the nice things about writing things down. It, it, gives some, it creates some safe distance between the writer and the reader <laughs> so that people can, oh, oh, that hurt. Oh, but darn it, he's right. Okay, it works within me. It brings some godly sorrow. Again, this is building on that same conversation we had last week in chapter 7, that Paul was strong in writing to the point he was almost sorry for it until he realized, oh no, it's helping you with your godly sorrow, then good. I'm glad I was bold, but I was only bold in absence. In presence, oh, I'm, I'm more base. Now, this might be his own choosing. I can afford to be more bold in absence because I am so humble in presence. And you know how much I love you. You know how meek I, I try to be as I serve you in person. And if I've, I mean, speaking of proof of your love, well, if you've had enough proof of my love while I've been with you, then when I'm away from you and I'm writing these letters, then I hope you know the spirit that I'm sending these letters in. That I'm not trying to make you feel bad for, to make me feel better. No, 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 no. I, these epistles are wetted with my own tears. We saw that last week. And so, that's Paul's side. Then again, it might be the people's side. If they're having a hard time embracing Paul, if they're more of the factions that are for Cephas or for Apollos, if they're having a hard time with, with this one, is Paul channeling their thoughts? You think I am overly bold in my letters. And it hurts too much. And you think that I'm base when I'm here. And you won't open your hearts to my message. And you won't accept my apostolic authority. He says, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we've walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Now, Paul's flexing some, some muscles here. He is showing some apostolic authority. And, and hold on to this, because it's going to run through most of the rest of what we see today. Just off and on. But he has to defend himself against doubters, against people that prefer other approaches to the gospel, or against, this is a true prophet trying to establish his authority in the face of false prophets 
that are striving to undermine it. Remember, there's divisions in Corinth, and there's some intellectualism, and, and Paul is determining to know nothing, and so are people not taking him seriously? Is he too base in their eyes? And, oh, yeah, you, you sound so, you, you talk the talk in these letters, but not then you come, and you're, not, you're a nobody. To me, it's interesting to see some apostles that are more easily read than listened to. And not just apostles, just people in general, that they might have the gift of words in writing, and they can think things through, and they spell it out, and, and how literarily it's, it's a masterpiece. But in person, they, they stutter, or they, they trip up over their words, or physically there's just no charisma there. You're like, what? Uh, Jonathan Edwards was that way, one of the most famous theologians in American history. You read his sermons, and you're blown away. You read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and it's like no wonder people fainted in the aisles of church to the point that, they, that he couldn't even get through his sermon. He must have been so, such a charismatic clergyman and, and a powerful preacher, but he wasn't. He was kind of socially awkward. He'd get nervous with people, and he had so many incredible things to say that he could say powerfully in writing. But in person, he would often stare at the rope at the back of the chapel that, that people would pull to ring the church bells on Sunday morning. And he'd just stare at that because there was no eye contact. He didn't have to look at the parishioners that were down below eye level. And in kind of a monotone approach, he'd just read his sermon, and yet people reacted to the words in such powerful ways. There, there are, yeah, I hope you, this makes sense in terms of how people might be approaching Paul the Apostle. And since we only have his words, no wonder we see him as such a strong servant of the Lord. So bold and un, unyielding. But in person, again, Joseph Smith said he was short. Was he a Zacchaeus of sorts? Is this short little tent maker? Did people take him seriously in person? Well, some people evidently did not. And Paul is <laughs> flexing some muscles and saying, uh, you want me to be that bold when I come? If you force me to, then I may have to. I, I just don't like warring after the flesh. I would rather trust in the Spirit of God. I would rather trust in the foolishness of preaching and leave your consciences pricked in hopes that you'll then turn to the Lord and make some necessary changes. I determined to know nothing. Well, maybe I determined to be nothing. But if you need me to be a little more strong in your presence, oh, I can be. I just would prefer not to have to go there. In verse 4 through 6, speaking of the world's weapons and warring after the flesh, Paul explains himself. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So I'm not going in that direction. I'm not appealing to worldly wisdom or charismatic strength. No, that's just carnal weaponry. Instead, what weapons does he use? He uses the ones that are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Now that's spiritual power. If it can cast down imaginations, which can be translated as human reasoning. Again, this is Corinth, Athens' sister city. 
And if the Spirit of God, more than the wisdom of the world, can pull that down, can humble the high things, this intellectual pride that pushes back against the knowledge of God. No, I'm going to give you the knowledge of God, but I'll do it in a godly way, in a humble and meek approach. In fact, what will divine knowledge do that worldly wisdom can't? I love this next phrase. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Mm, there's the revenge of godly sorrow. Ready to revenge that disobedience. Ah, oh, beautiful. But you see that God's ways are not the world's ways. That God's weapons are not the world's weapons. That the spiritual charisma is a different thing than the worldly type. And so this oh, diminutive little disciple, this Paul, I believe I need to look up the quote again, but I, again, where Joseph says that he is, was short, I believe he also said that his voice was, oh, nothing to write home about until he really got into it. And then his preaching started to sound like the roar of a lion. Uh, it makes you wonder, how did Joseph know all this about <laughs> what Paul looked like and sounded like? Well, he's a visionary man. But to, to see Paul in that light, to picture him trusting in the foolishness of preaching and the power of God so that he wasn't flexing the arm of flesh but was relying upon the arm of God and paying people the compliment. I know that between you and God, if you just read these words and sit with them, God will change your heart. God will convince you of the truthfulness of all of this. And between you and Him, you'll start to feel godly sorrow and begin to experience a mighty change of heart. In some ways, this is Paul's equivalent of what Jesus did with a woman taken in adultery. Just calmly squatting down and riding in the dirt to allow other people the chance to work through things. And let the Spirit work on them. That's Paul's preferred approach. Because there's nothing like the Spirit to bring down pride. Nothing like the Spirit to cast down vain imaginations. Or my favorite one, nothing like the Spirit to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Man, can you, can you imagine having so much control of your thoughts I mean, the mind wanders, and it's this, the, the meandering mind, and just almost like, like water, just flowing downhill in any direction, just trying to find the path of least resistance. I mean, no wonder mindfulness and meditation takes so much practice to begin to bring the mind into subjection, into captivity, as Paul puts it. Every thought so often our thoughts seem like a, <laughs> a picture of someone walking a dog and, and then another dog and another dog. And picture some little kid just trying to earn some money, but they create this dog walking service and have, and then pretty much you have a whole pack and your hands are filled with leashes <laughs> and the dogs are going everywhere. <laughs> or like herding cats. I mean, pick your analogy. And that's the mind. And it's bouncing left and right and it can't focus on anything. 
I mean, we're living in an age of ADD. And we all seem to have it to some degree. And yet, with the Spirit's help, the power of God allowing us to bring, to rein in that, that puppy and hold stronger to the leash. And nope, that thought, get back in here. Get back in line. We're not thinking about that. We're not getting distracted with that. Oh, squirrel. No, there's no squirrels. Actually, there, squirrels are everywhere, but we don't care about a single one. Can you imagine being able to control your thoughts to that degree? That they are captive to Christ. Thoughts that are self-destructive. Thoughts that are unclean. Thoughts that are merely distracting. Thoughts that are self-defeating. Don't let your mind go there. Do you remember the phrase that Jacob uses to the victims of other people's immoralities? Two times in two verses, he uses the phrase firmness of mind. You've been victimized. You've been hurt. And I bet your mind is shattered in some ways. And it's going a million places at once. No, you've got to rest in the love of God. You've got to lay hold of it with both hands. And in order to do that, it's your mind that must be firm. It's your thoughts you're going to need to learn to control. Thoughts that lead to temptation. Thoughts that lead to anxiety. Thoughts that lead to depression or anything else. It's our mind that we've lost control of in the world that is constantly trying to call our attention to other lesser things. And so Paul, preaching powerfully, allowing the Spirit to rein things in, to help us gain that firmness of mind, that I single to the glory of God, that's focus, that's concentration. Those are thoughts being held captive in obedience to Christ. We've got a ways to go, don't we? But what a goal to aim for. Paul then goes on and says in verse 7 through 9, Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? I mean, if you do, that's got to stop. If any man trust to himself that he is Christ's, ooh, careful, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. So we belong to the Savior just as much as you do. Again, if you doubters out there, you who would prefer someone else to come and, and tell you you're doing nothing wrong, some false prophet to, to smooth out your troubled conscience, someone to deaden your pain instead of heal you. No, we're we are of Christ. We know that. He says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. You see, Paul's not trying to shock and awe them into obedience or submission by, by pulling rank, by kind of forcing his apostolic authority in their face. He's got it. He says, I could, I could, maybe I should boast more about my authority. I don't want to. I wish you would just 
trust the spirit of the words that I give. Trust the ultimate authority of Christ that lies behind them all. If you understood I'm just trying to edify and not destroy, then I wouldn't have to terrify you by letters. And I certainly wouldn't try to, or wouldn't have to terrify you in person, since you don't think I can anyway. No, Paul would prefer to be humble and let the Lord provide the backup that Paul seems to need here. By the way, one other phrase, one of the phrases there that struck me, I don't, I swear I've read this before, but this one I was like, has it always been in there? Is the phrase, as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. Yeah, they belong to him, so do, so do we. I think we as Latter-day Saints can do a little bit more, well, we can do a lot better at honoring the Christianity of, of those outside our particular faith. That they are of Christ, just like we are. And I would hope, if we could do better at that towards others, I would hope that other Christians could do that better towards us. I would hope that they could, could say with Paul, you know what, we're going to allow you to belong to Christ just like we do. Fellow Christians, though of a different kind. But getting back to what Paul is up against among these doubters, look at verse 10 and 11. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence mm, is weak and his speech contemptible. And the Greek word there means worthless or easy to be ignored. Think about that. I mean, yeah, you write so powerfully, but then you come and this little man with his squeaky, high-pitched voice uh, that's so easy to ignore and just dismiss. And why do we have to listen to this guy? Now, careful. Paul says, let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. Oh, I can, I can give you a lion's roar if you need one. If I'm weighty in writing, then I can be equally heavy in my speech. I just don't want to be. When I'm with you, I want you to feel my love and God's love. I don't want to make this confrontational, but I can if need be. In some ways, you will get the teacher that you are asking for. I just don't know if you really want that kind I don't want to be that kind. He then says in verse 12 and 13, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. We don't want to be the ones that have to go around always announcing how amazing we are and, and all eyes on us. No, there's plenty of people who do that. We're going to meet some later on in this week's material. Uh, they're affectionately known as super apostles. <laughs> and and to, to picture those who, and apostles with a lowercase a, we could call them super missionaries, or the people who at least claim to be. They're the type who commend themselves. But then notice what Paul says to pop their bubble. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. These are the proud who try to make themselves look good by comparing themselves just to themselves and to each other. And, oh yeah, you're all big fish in a little pond. 
you're all just kind of puff out your chest. It's like those lizards that stick those those side things out uh, or these animals that puff themselves up to make themselves look bigger than they are, right? And people are doing that here in Corinth. The way Paul puts it, but we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. Now, when Paul says without our measure there, another way to define that measure is his, his stewardship. Is there a limit to his responsibility or his authority? Is, he was clear in 1 Corinthians, I'm not trying to build on any other person's foundation. Okay, I'm, I'm looking for virgin territory. I'm, I'm trying to grow the church. And I'm not trying to come and, and take, somebody else, take credit for somebody else's work. No, no, no. In fact, I don't want credit at all. Uh, I may have planted, Apollos may have watered, but God gave the increase. Remember we saw that in 1 Corinthians? So, no, no, I'm not trying to boast of things outside my stewardship. I'm not trying to take credit. Uh, I'm not letting things go to my head. I, I don't claim to be a super apostle. No. But I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I will do his work in his way. And I hope you'll receive it in the spirit that is given He says in verse 14, For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. Again, I'm not working outside my jurisdiction. I'm not striving beyond my stewardship. No. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. So I'm not overreaching my authority. I'm not going outside my bounds. I'm not boasting of things without our measure, he says. That is, of other men's labors. But having hope, when your faith is increased, that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly. That's all he's hoping for. Hoping that the work will continue to expand beyond the immediate area. Okay, I I want your faith to increase. I want it to be enlarged as it goes beyond. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. That's all I want and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. Paul was never trying to take credit for anyone else's work. He wasn't trying to build on other missionaries' foundations. He just wanted to work the work to go forward. And all to the glory of God. That's how he ends this chapter, verse 17 and 18. But he that glorieth, which is what you probably think I'm doing, <laughs> I'm not glorying in me. Let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Sound a little like Ammon after his mission? When his brother Aaron is like, whoa, whoa, easy, tiger. It sounds like you're, you're boasting there. And Ammon's like, oh, you've completely misjudged me. I'm boasting all right, but if I'm boasting in God. In his strength, I can do all things. I, to glory in a God of glory that somehow in his generosity lets us tag along as junior companions. It's amazing that he would let us serve alongside him. And Paul is rejoicing in that. He is glorying in the Lord. And as a result, he's content to let the Lord glory in him. I don't want to boast about myself or flex my apostolic muscles. No, I'll let God give me the backup. I'll let the Spirit confirm my every word. And I'm amazed to see modern apostles with the same 
courage and the same conviction. Not pulling rank, not forcing us, not trying to get, get us to cower under their authority. No, they simply trust the foolishness of preaching. They simply open their mouths and let them be filled and trust that if we'll simply open our hearts, they will be filled as well. And that through the Holy Ghost, our pride will be pulled down. Our thoughts will be taken captive to Christ. And we will have testimonies that God is true and that God in His goodness sends true messengers to point us to Him. Now as we turn the page from chapter 10 to chapter 11 and shift from the first half of our lesson to the second half, it's on the heels of that conversation about true messengers that Paul is going to pick up and run. He's going to continue to emphasize this because he's serving in the face of, of skepticism. Even among the saints, some wondering, who is this guy? And why, who does he think he is to call us out for our so-called sin? I mean, he, there's no worldly wisdom here. There's no polished rhetoric. Doesn't he know we're Corinthians? We have all knowledge and all utterance. Oh, yeah, and all pride. And so Paul, fighting pride with humility, hmm, is this going to work? What can he say and how can he say it in such a way that people will begin to take him more seriously? Yes, some already have. And it pricked their consciences and their hearts. And with godly sorrow, they repented of their sins. And it thrilled Paul. But then these other skeptics, a little more hardened hearts, hard for God to write upon the, tab the tablets because they're not fleshy. Oh, they're hard as the stone of Sinai. Will they change? As we study now chapter 11 and 12 and 13, Paul is going to begin spending some more time about, or some more time on true messengers and why it's so important to recognize their apostolic authority and, and follow their words of, of wisdom. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, maybe a little facetiously, a little tongue-in-cheek, Would to God ye could bear with me a little in my folly. And indeed, bear with me. I mean, some of you have been accusing me of that. Weak when I'm present. Only strong when I'm absent. Oh, this, this, is guy, like this, this little guy, he's like the court jester. He's not an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is just folly. Well, fine, if that's what you think. Could you just bear with me a little longer? For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. We already saw him talk about godly sorrow. Well, what's godly jealousy look like? Well, let me show you. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And that's the kind of jealousy Paul is hinting at. I'm the, the ultimate matchmaker. And the match I've made is between the God of Israel and the house of Israel, along with all those Gentiles that are being adopted in. I am, I'm trying to, to seal the, the betrothal between Christ and the church. I, and what I'm most worried about. I mean, picture this. If, if Paul is playing Papa here, he's the father of the bride. And the bride is the church. The bridegroom is Christ. And Christ, of course, will ever be faithful 
to his covenant companion. Oh, it's just this fickle daughter of mine, as Paul feels, that I'm worried about. And it's up to me as the father to protect the chastity and virtue of my daughter, especially during this engagement phase. And I don't have anything to worry about from my future son-in-law. I know he is as faithful and virtuous as the day is long. But my daughter, oh, she's got a history. And I'm trying to help her maintain her virtue. She is a chaste virgin to Christ. I've got to keep her that way. She's espoused to one husband, and so I don't want her eyes to wander or her thoughts to her mind to meander. No, it's got to be brought into, into captivity to Christ. And, and a powerful metaphor here. As Paul is trying to convince his hearers, you're the betrothed. Okay? And I'm trying to keep you pure. Remember how many times last year in the Old Testament we saw idolatry and adultery connected? We talked about covenant infidelity. Have you been cheating on God? Have you been unfaithful in your covenants? That's what is keeping Paul up at night. And he's concerned about this. So please, if you're engaged to Christ, if you've made covenants with him, please be true to that. Be a chaste virgin to Christ. But here's the problem. Verse 3 and 4. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if he receive another spirit, which he have not received, or another gospel, which he have not accepted, he might well bear with him. And that's what scares me to death. That's what I fear, that you're going to put up with falsehood, that you're going to roll over and, and be seduced away from the Savior. In fact, that word beguiled that he uses in reference to Eve can be translated as deceived and seduced. And so think about seduction in the marriage metaphor. And no wonder this father is so careful with his daughter. Overprotective, you might think, like some of the Corinthians did. But Paul is just trying to keep them true to the covenant they're making. In the face of seduction from outside voices. Did you catch that in verse 4? Another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. And you're bearing with that? You're not up in arms, pushing back and, and fighting to hold on to your faith? Some pseudo-gospel, and you're like, oh, it sounds good. Man, you, are, you might as well go all the way up to Athens and climb Mars Hill and be up there just listening to new things and ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. I'm worried about your intellectual pride that's leading you down that path. Because it's drawing, away, drawing you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. I mean, this is a key verse to the Corinthians. In some ways, we can take this passage, verse 1 through 4, and couple it with 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and, and the intellectualism that Paul was pushing back against. 
do you get a sense sometimes among the well-educated or the intellectually proud, always looking for some new thing, oh, more questions, almost an avoidance of answers, and they, they grow bored with the simple truths of the gospel? I sometimes have seen that even among my BYU students. I remember one, one young man once said in a class, like, oh, I just, I just want the mysteries. And, and there was this, I don't know, this, he was unsatisfied with simple truth. And so he just, he wanted mysteries. And it's like, what, are you, what kind of mysteries are you talking about, right? And it was like, I, I, I'm bored at the tree trunk. And I just want to keep wa- wa- you know, walking out further and further on the branches. Well, eventually that branch isn't going to support you. Uh, is, is there even a branch beneath your feet? <laughs> in, in the face of one of those questions, I just want the mysteries. I'm like, ooh, you want a mystery? Oh, I'll give you a mystery. Kind of look around nervously like, okay, don't tell me about this one. But man, once you figure this out, mm, life's going to change. Like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. It's called charity. Figure that one out. Go reread 1 Corinthians 13 and see if, you're, if you've truly mastered the pure love of Christ. Oh, that, that'll, that'll keep you up at night. You understand that there's something about this being corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I remember actually we did a, uh, a survey among the students at the University of Utah Institute to get a sense of their positive and negative experiences and how we could improve Institute for their sake. And it was interesting to read their comments about what made things positive for a positive experience and some for a negative among their complaints. And that was really what I wanted to know. Okay, I think it was Bill Gates that once said, your greatest source of information will be unhappy customers. Hmm. Well, I wanted to meet some unhappy former institute customers, students. And what went wrong? And it was interesting, two complaints that almost seemed to be at total odds with each other. One complaint was, uh, sometimes institute just feels like seminary reheated. And I'm learning nothing new. It's just the same old stuff. And I already know this. Well, yeah, that might be intellectual pride on their part. But maybe, Lord is it I, well, perhaps. Maybe I'm, I'm not giving them deeper understanding of these truths. So that was one complaint. But then there was the, an almost opposite one. And some complained, like, sometimes I come to institute, and I don't know. It's like the, the teacher is trying to push the envelope so far that it's things that are like so esoteric and, and it's like, is this true? I've never heard this. Where is this even coming from? It, the complaint, in essence, was, is there it, too much speculation in some classes? And, and the teacher's off in the corner with his tie over his shoulder and says, well, what about this possibility? And we're like, I don't know. What are you talking about? And what struck me about this was there was complaints on one extreme of it's too simple and complaints on the other, it's unnecessarily complex. It's too speculative. And I thought, are you guys just canceling each other out? And then I realized, oh, no, 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 no. We've got some contraries to prove. And one group was complaining about too cold, and the other was complaining about too hot, which means there's a Goldilocks zone in the middle. And how do we make Institute deep, without being overly complicated? How do we keep things simple without making them simplistic? You understand? 
uh, we, we're not trying to create a group of, of Gnostics with some, some Gnostic gospel and only those in the know. So let's go out and speculate together. No, that's a problem. That's being corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's, and it's so seductive, especially among those given to the life of the mind. Oh, no wonder there are certain fringe groups growing within the church among some of the best of the saints as they're being peddled false prophecy from false prophets saying, oh, we know more than the apostles do. We're super apostles. <laughs> We're wiser messengers. So come with us. Oh, it's seductive, all right. It's playing to your pride. It's, it's appealing to your intellectual arrogance. And it is drawing you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Again, that doesn't mean it has to be so simplistic that it's like, oh, I've heard this a million times. My goal in teaching is to take things that people already know, scriptures that have always been in front of them, and go deeper to appreciate them more and to understand their greater relevance and connect the dots across the board. But I, I pray that I haven't come across as speculative. No, I want to hold to true doctrine. I do not want to seduce anyone from the simplicity that is in Christ. Maybe that's the simplicity on the other side of complexity that Elder Hafen has talked about. Okay, powerful, powerful verse. I also need to say something, though, because some of you may have, like, whoa, 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 don't move on to verse 5 yet, because there was something in verse 3 that I'm, I got a bone to pick. And it's this idea about Eve being beguiled by the serpent's subtlety. Hmm, wait a minute. I thought it was a fortunate fall. Oh, wait a minute. I thought Eve did something courageous. Well, yes and yes. The fall is fortunate, absolutely necessary in the Father's plan. And Eve was incredibly courageous in partaking of the fruit. Okay? Hold to that. Then why would Paul say that she was beguiled? Well, first of all, can we keep things in context? Always important in our scripture study. Is this, is 2 Corinthians a discourse on Eden? Is it an explanation of the fall? And Paul is walking you through and trying, it's like, no, it isn't. In some ways, it's like, wait, wait, where, why are you, is this a tangent? Where did Eve come from? Kind of popped it out of nowhere. Well, she appears as an analogy, and that's it. Be careful about using this verse as some kind of an establishment of doctrine to say, yep, Eve was guilty and she had no idea what she was doing and Satan totally tricked her and, and no wonder women have been the source of, of all kinds of problems ever since. Because sadly, a lot of history, a lot of society has gone that route. Okay? So in context, Paul is not giving a doctrinal discourse on, on the fall of humanity through Eve. What he's talking about is be very careful about people who are seducing you away from the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beware of those false prophets that are giving you a false gospel. Those false Christs that are presenting another Jesus than the one that you know that we have preached you, to you. And then Paul, as he always did, scouring the pages of the Old Testament, to find examples and analogies. Oh, here's a good one. And I'm just going to throw it out and then move on to other topics because I'm not here to talk about Eve. I'm just 
going to bring her up as an example of someone that, ooh, you got to be careful because you might end up being seduced by someone else's subtlety. You might end up being beguiled. Now, if to the degree that Eve was beguiled, because I want to honor that possibility as well, because it, is a, it was a transgression, and we talked about this at length last year when we studied Genesis and, and the fall and Eve's role in it. But, so I want to honor her courage and her wisdom, her knowledge, that there's no way we can live the first commandment of multiplying and replenishing the earth if we don't allow the consequences of partaking of the fruit to take place. But was she beguiled? Well, yes and no. I, I, as my students have and I have wrestled with this together, I've often asked them, when you return missionaries out there, when you put in your papers and accepted your mission call, did you know what you were getting yourself into? And they're like, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, I sort of did. I, I wanted to serve. I kind of knew what a mission was like, but yeah, just kind of. It was way harder than I thought. Okay, yeah. How about any students that are married? When you proposed and when you accepted and when you were sealed in the temple, did you know what you were getting yourself into with marriage? And they're like, of course we, oh, no, no, not, not well, a little, but not entirely. Like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, when you graduated from high school and, and applied to college and you started <laughs> your education, your higher education, did you know what you were getting yourself into? And again, the answer is, yeah, oh, no. When we accepted the plan of salvation and shouted for joy, as Job says, did we know what we'd signed up for? Yes. And not entirely. And that's just life. We can make sense and it's the right thing to do, but I don't, I've never lived it. And there's all going to be all kinds of unknowns. Well, does that describe Eve pretty well? I know I must partake. There's no other way. But did she really know everything about what she was getting herself into? And getting her husband into and making that decision when he wasn't present, when the consequences of that decision would definitely affect them both. Was there some subtlety on the serpent's part? You better believe it. Half-truths and questioning commandments and dividing the pair and so on. Was there some beguiling, some seducing, some deceiving? Yes despite Eve's wisdom and courage in making that choice. You understand? That, that's all I'll say about, about the fall and about Eve's role in it. Here, let's get back to Paul's topic. I'm just, I'm just worried about subtlety. I'm worried about seduction. I'm worried about deception. Everything that Jesus warned them about in, in the Olivet Discourse and the signs of the times of Matthew 24, with false prophets and false teachers and false Christs, deceiving the very elect according to the covenant. Is it already happening among the Corinthian saints? Yes. And Paul is pushing back against it. In every letter, he's pushing back against apostasy. And here he's trying to help them hold to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His is good advice to follow even in our day as we face similar struggles.
But then verse 5 through 7, back to reestablishing his apostolic authority in the face of skepticism. For I suppose I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. And this was likely said sarcastically, with a bit of irony there, some sting. Because these are just the so-called chiefest apostles. These are those super apostles that people seem... And again, apostles, lowercase a, this is not the quorum of the twelve. An apostle is, in the lowercase a, is merely someone who is sent. We could say missionaries. So some chief missionary who claims greater authority than I have, and is coming trying to seduce you away from the gospel with, with the Gnostic knowledge. No, be, beware of that. Be careful in this situation. I'm not a whit behind them. Okay, Please, he's not comparing himself to Peter, James, and John. And I deserve to be among the original 12. I was just born too late. No. Just those of you who are being seduced away from the simplicity with this higher thinking of these so-called super servants. No. I'm not a, a sliver. I'm not a wit behind them. But though I be rude in speech, fine, if that's what you think. My voice is too squeaky. If, if, if I come across as unpolished in my rhetoric, fine. Though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge. I know what I'm talking about. I know of, of whom I speak. I saw the Lord on the road to Damascus. I am not rude in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. So living among you for a year and a half, yeah, you see my human frailty. You see my weakness. It's all been made manifest. Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that ye might be exalted? Because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely. That's all Paul has ever wanted to do is serve them, build the kingdom, connect them to Christ. And he's been lowering himself every step of the way. Remember we saw this earlier. Which I, I didn't take the, the, your donations. I didn't ask for them. I didn't want to be beholden to anyone else. So no, I provided for myself. Making, making tents. But my real purpose in all of this was to extend the tent of Zion. So you could all come in. I have been abasing myself. So you could be exalted. Jesus did the same thing. He who was rich became poor so that out of his poverty we could become rich. That's all I've been trying to do. In verse 8 and 9, he continues his self-defense. I robbed other churches, taking wages of them to do you service. Now again, this is just hyperbole here, right? He was speaking sarcastically before, now it's hyperbolic. And it's like, what? I, there I was, robbing other churches, taking wages so I could come and do you service. No, he's not robbing anyone. But it does su suggest that in other congregations, he did receive, or accept, I should say, he did accept some financial help in order to travel to Corinth in the first place. Okay, But here I am, robbing those churches, as some might say. I'm taking wages of them. I'm a, I'm a, that's priestcraft. That's what I am guilty of, right? Oh, yeah, because, because I, I allowed someone else to help me cross the ocean travel across the Mediterranean to be able to come to Corinth? No, I've come to do you service. And when I was present with you, he continues, and wanted, I was chargeable to no man. For that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. What he's pushing, this goes back to what we saw in 
earlier in his letters. You're mad because I wouldn't accept your financial assistance? And now you're mad because I did accept financial assistance from others just to be able to make the journey to get here? Man, darned if I do, darned if I don't. And do you want me to be beholden to you? And that's why you're trying to offer? Or you don't want me to be burden? I don't want to be a burden. I have always just wanted to lift up, not weigh down. And I don't plan on changing that approach. I will provide for myself and I will trust in the provisions that the Lord gives me. I'll be the lily that he clothes and the sparrow that he feeds. I'm not worried about purse or scrip. The Lord always takes care of his own. But I, I pray you'll recognize me as one of his own. Please believe me in all of this. As passionately as Paul feels about all of this, it reminds me of a phrase that Elder Neil A. Maxwell coined years ago. He talked about high-yield, low-maintenance members. And I remember when I first heard that at a meeting of church educators, I just thought, that's what I want to be. I want to be high-yield, low-maintenance. That you don't have to give me anything. Oh, the Lord will provide uh, and I, I, don't, I don't want to take any fast offerings. I don't want other people to have to serve me. No, pile up the callings and put me to work, and I'm just going to yield, yield, yield. I want good harvest here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sow bountifully and let the Lord reap bountifully for my efforts. And that's always been my approach to discipleship. High yield, low maintenance. Well, it was interesting. Our last few years of, in Tennessee were hard. A lot of mental health challenges in the family and some real struggles and just trying to survive it all. And by the end, my wife and four of our kids were already in Utah getting some help. And my, myself and my oldest daughter were back in Tennessee. And for six months, it was kind of distance in the family and just trying to figure things out. And... The CES, where church education was kind, to say, you know what, we like families living in the same state. We should, we should move you back to Utah. If that's where you can get the help for your family that they need, then by all means, we'll give you an assignment. And the church members, our neighbors there in Tennessee, were so kind to help us get our house ready to sell. Uh, honestly, I was at the edge of my own sanity. And I couldn't have... There was so much about getting the house ready that I couldn't do. And I was so grateful for just amazing members of our ward and, and neighbors and just people that came to our rescue in, in real ways. I owe you more than you realize, those old friends of mine. And I remember moving to Utah and clean slate and a new ward and and meeting with the bishop as he got to know our family. And I remember saying to him, Bishop, I need you to know that for the last couple of years, our family has been, or I said, through most of our lives, my wife and I have been really focused on being high yield, low maintenance members. And we're the type that you can give heavy callings to, and we just roll up our sleeves and get at it, and we're here to work, and we're here to serve, and just bless the people around us. So. We're we're great we're grateful to be here and, and we're ready to we're ready to we're ready to go. 
And then I said, wait, explain a little bit of our, our last few years in Tennessee and wh what brought us here, there and understand, helped him understand what our family was dealing with. And I said, the last few years, it's felt like we've been, we've been the opposite. And we've been low yield, high maintenance. And we haven't been able to give as much as we're used to in our callings. And people have had to come to our rescue uh, to help us with children and issue, family, you know, and all, everything. And I've been so grateful that people, other people, have been willing to come to our, our aid. I think we're in a little better place. <laughs> I think we've found some help and, and things are getting more stable because we would love to once again become high yield, low maintenance instead of low yield, high maintenance. And our wonderful bishop just smiled and expressed his love and said, either way, we're grateful to have you. <laughs> and if you are ready to give, great. If you still need to receive, that's great too. And, and we all seem to go back and forth between times where we can be high yield, low maintenance, and times where we are low yield, high maintenance. It's okay. And I was just so reassured and so grateful for that welcome. And we've, we've been fluctuating back and forth ever since in our family ups and downs and the roller coaster of life. I just love Paul for his, the righteousness of his desire. I don't want to be chargeable. I don't want to be burdensome. I just want to lift where I stand. But I pray you'll lift alongside me. As much, with as much strength as you're able to give. That's all. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver, right? Give what you can, but with a smile on your mouth. Then verse 10 through 12. Paul continues, As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Wherefore? Because I love you not? Oh, God knoweth. And there seems to be a little sarcasm there, at least some irony. What, you don't think I love you? Oh, God knows. God knows that I do love you. I have given proof of the sincerity of my love ever since I stepped foot in Corinth years ago. Here he says, But what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. Now think about the phrase he just used. To cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. Occasion for what? We would say an excuse. An excuse for what? And there are some people out there that are just looking for an excuse to attack you, looking for an excuse to dismiss you, to, to judge you. Some are looking for an excuse to be offended or to leave the church, and they just want to feel justified in that decision. And unfortunately, if you're looking for justification, you'll probably find it. Unless you're someone like Paul, who's striving with all his heart to eliminate that possibility, to cut off occasion, to not give them that excuse that they're looking for. I mean, think about it in these terms. Elder Hales, Robert D. Hales said this about, in his talk called Christian Courage. It's one of my favorite talks. Especially when I do interfaith work, or, or am I going to face a situation where people might oppose me? I'll go and reread that talk. And in it, he says, when people say that you're not a Christian, if they accuse you of not being Christian, the worst thing you can do is to prove them right by the way you respond. And I'm like, ooh, that's genius, Elder Hales. It's like, oh, you're not even a Christian. I get so up in arms and I'm so angry. They're like, ooh, yeah, see, that, that's not how Jesus would do it. He would have turned the other cheek. Mm, darn it, you're right. 
Or how about this example? When somebody leaves the church, because they're, man, they're muttering under, under their breath saying, oh, because Mormons are judgmental and holier than thou. Well, be very careful the way you react to their departure. Because if you get angry at them and start saying, well, it's your fault and this and your, well, we just proved them right. Because we reacted in a judgmental, holier than thou kind of way. Hmm. Now, I know it's impossible to be completely innocent when someone is trying to make you an offender for a word or looking for anything you might be doing wrong to use it as an excuse for their, their appraisal of you or their association or lack thereof of the church. You understand what I'm saying. But can we do better at, at not giving them occasion? Can we be more blameless and respond to people in such a loving way that it gives them second thoughts as they leave? Like, huh, that did not go the way I thought it would. I was being a jerk to them in hopes they'd be a jerk back to me so I would know that, hey, we're both still jerks. But instead, darn it, they kept the higher moral ground. They cut off occasion, even though I desired occasion. I wanted to fight back, and they refused to fight. Ah, that's the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. That's Gandhi. That's Martin Luther King Jr. That's Jesus. I hope it's us. Now, verse 13 through 15, this is what Paul's up against. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And another way to say transforming themselves into would be masquerading as. Oh, that's, again, so close to Matthew 24's warning about false Christs and false prophets and false teachers. People pretending to be something that they're not. They're masquerading. These are false apostles. Oh, dressed up as true apostles of Christ. False messengers wanting to come across as true. And no marvel, he goes on. For Satan himself is transformed or masquerades as an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Oh, please beware of counterfeits, my dear Corinthians. And if you can pull away the hypocrite's mask, if you can see through the masquerade, by their fruits ye shall know them. Someday that fruit will be made manifest. Someday that end will be according to their work. Oh, but in the meantime, I hope you have discerning eyes, a discerning heart to be able to recognize false messengers, wolves in sheep's clothing, pretending to be true messengers instead. Now, verse 16, I say again, let no man think me a fool, though that's probably what you're muttering under your breath. If otherwise, well, fine. Yet as a fool, receive me, that I may boast myself a little. And again, there's some, oh, some wordplay on Paul's part. Makes it hard for us as readers, but it must have been fun for them who understood what he was saying. You think me a fool? Great. Well, you'd probably even let a fool at least speak. 
I mean, the court jester does get to get to talk, even in the presence of a king. So, hey, can I, can I take my cap and bells and give you a word, some words of wisdom? If so, that which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. Now, seeing that many glory after the flesh, well, I, fine, I will glory also. For ye suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. Oh, to suffer fools gladly. That's, this is the verse where that, that phrase comes from. And it's just, it just means to kind of let things go. Just put up with stuff. It's beneath you. But yeah, just it, it kind of pat them on the head and ignore what they're saying. But suffer those fools gladly. Fine, if you think that I'm a fool, will you suffer me? Will you let me speak? If so, here's my message. Verse 20 and 21. For ye suffer, in other words, you put up with this. Ye suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you, if a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. I mean, you'll take all of that. I, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. In other words, I speak it as a matter of reproach to myself, as though we were weak. Howbeit, whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Now, really confusing, but what's he saying here? Are you really going to suffer it? Are you really going to take it when somebody brings you into bondage? Are you just going to roll over and be enslaved to someone? Or what about when somebody comes to devour you? I mean, just they're gobbling up all your household goods. You're going to let that happen too? What about if they smite you in the face? You just, you just take it? No, of course not. But what he's saying is, but you take it when these false prophets come in. You take it when these false messengers, these superior missionaries preaching their falsehoods to you, and you take it all? No, we've got to fight back. We've got to stand up for what we know to be true. Now again, he said it earlier, my warfare is not the warfare of the world. I'm going to trust in the Spirit of God, but you better believe I'm going to hold to it. I'll turn the other cheek physically, but I'm not going to do that spiritually and just let you roll right over the revelation God has given me. You might take my household goods and, yeah, okay, but you're not going to take away my testimony. Oh, no. I know these things are true. I'm a witness of the resurrection. And so you want me to be bold? Oh, I'll be bold. You want me to prove my apostolic authority? You want me to show you my street cred? Well, buckle up. Put your big boy pants on. We're ready to rumble. The way he says it in verse 22 to 25. Are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Ooh, how about even, let's get closer to those so-called super apostles. Are they ministers of Christ? Oh, I speak as a fool. I am more. Or as the JST puts it, so am I. I I'm all of those things that these people claim to be. I am a true messenger in the face of falsehood. And I'll prove myself. How's this for credentials? 
in labors more abundant. I don't know if there's ever been a messenger of the Lord who has served more diligently than I. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure. Let me take the the robe off my back and you can see all of the scars that I've gained from my service. Above measure. I've lost count. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. In fact, I can be more specific than that. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And if that's not bad enough, keep reading in verse 26. In journeyings, often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. Take your pick. In perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hungers and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And if that wasn't bad enough, beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, Namely, the care of all the churches. How this is a resume of affliction. And every entry in it stands as evidence that Paul cannot be moved. That Paul is willing to die daily for his testimony of the Lord who overcame death for him and for us all. These are such powerful verses as Paul. You want me to be bold? Well, here's boldness. I'm a Hebrew more than you are. I'm an Israelite more than you. I'm, I'm more closely related to Abraham than any of you could claim. I'm a true messenger. And the evidence I can offer is what I've been willing to endure. I am sincere in my testimony of Jesus. And I'm willing to face storm and suffering, whips and wounds, peril after peril after peril. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation, as he said in the Romans. Paul is as good as they come. He's as serious about his service as any, as any missionary, as any apostle could be. And there's his evidence. He goes on in verse 29. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not, or the JST, and I anger not? What he's describing there is empathy for others. If you're weak, I'm right there with you. If you're offended, then I'm ticked off. Okay, I, I take seriously your weaknesses, your affliction, whatever you go through, I'm right there with you. He says, if I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern mine infirmities. That's what I'm most proud of, all these stripes. To me, they are badges of honor. Every scar bears witness of my commitment to Christ. And I glory in it. I glory in my adversity, because it's proof of my conviction. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says, 
which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. So I've given you all this evidence, <laughs> exhibit A through Z, and now I'm calling God himself to the witness stand. He'll testify that I'm not lying here. In fact, one other piece of evidence that just comes to mind. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. That's how much opposition I faced then. You think I'm scared of the so-called super apostles here in Corinth? Not at all. Back then, when, when the garrison was after me, through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. I mean, think about this. What are we willing to endure for the kingdom of God's sake? Paul gave us quite the list. What's on ours? Will we endure late nights? early mornings? Will we endure hard times and hard callings? Will we go on missions and trek and temple trips and, and magnify every chance that we have to serve? Will we endure opposition and face persecution? Will we overcome apostasy? Will we hold to the faith? Come what may. That's what Paul's asking. I remember as a kid, I've shared this before, but I was a senior in high school and I went to a friend's ward to see their mission farewell and then I stayed for the other two hours just because I liked. I had friends in that ward and wanted to hang out with them in Sunday school and young men's. Then I went to my ward and was there for the three hours. And then I had a church meet, a youth committee meeting for two hours. And by the end of that Sunday, I was beaming. And I came home and I told my dad, who was in the stake presidency at the time, Dad, I had like an eight-hour day at church today. It was amazing. And <laughs> oh, after an even longer day himself, my dad just smiled and said, eight hours, huh? Man, good for you. That's a good start. <laughs> and that's all it was compared to his. It was a good start. And yes, it was a start. A start of a lifetime of service with many an eight-hour day and beyond. And then my dad said something I'll never forget. He simply said, son, nothing beats exhaustion in the Lord's service. My dad knows that exhaustion as does my mom. Paul knew that exhaustion. He knew that opposition. He knew it all. But he knew the Lord that made it all worth it. True messengers. Oh, Paul was as true to the truth as you can get. Now, what he ended chapter 11 was, oh, the temporal, the, the, the personal, the the persecution and affliction and opposition. And there's evidence for you. But if that's the negative, can I dwell on the positive for a time as well? As you turn to chapter 12, notice where he begins here. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. Or in other translations, this boasting will not do good, but I must go on. So I, I imagine all of this evidence probably hasn't even done anything. It hasn't pushed back against your skepticism, even though I have so much evidence of how fully invested in this work I am. But fine, let me shift gears and try something different. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. 
So yeah, chapter 11 was to describe the hard things I'd suffered at the hands of man. Chapter 12, how about we describe the transcendent things I've experienced at the hands of God? And here's the first one he mentions. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. But such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable things which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, who was this man that Paul knew? Well, Paul knew him intimately because it was Paul himself. He's referring to himself from a distance. And maybe that was to reaffirm his own humility. Maybe this was not to draw too much of the spotlight upon himself. I still see apostles doing that in our day, bearing profound and powerful testimony of their, of their knowledge of the Lord, but doing it humbly enough so as not to draw too much of the spotlight. Their, testimony of, their testimonies of Christ are sure. When they say, I know I think they know in ways even more powerful than we do. There have been times they have hinted at, at that kind of knowledge, but in very humble ways. Here Paul is doing this so humbly as well. But what is he bearing witness of? Oh, I know. I know what paradise looks like. I can't tell you about it. It's unutterable, unspeakable words but I've experienced the ineffable. I have felt the transcendent. I've seen the Lord. I've been caught up to the third heaven. Think about what he said back in 1 Corinthians 15 in his witness of the resurrection. That yes, there are bodies celestial and bodies terrestrial and bodies telestial. There's the glory of the stars, but a glory of the moon. And then, oh, how's this for third heaven? The glory of the sun that surpasseth all understanding. I've been there. I've experienced that. I know of what I speak. Now, admittedly, I, I don't know everything, and I can't say everything. It's unutterable. It's not lawful for me to utter. But some of it I can't even tell. Like, was I in the body? Was I not in the body? Was this a physically present? Like I, was I physically present there? Or did God open the eyes of my understanding? Visions are so far beyond, outside of normal human experience, that I cannot blame Paul for not being able to wrap his rational mind completely around it. I, I don't know. Was I in the body? Was I not? Hard to say. Joseph Smith would say the same thing in section 137, of his vision of the third heaven, when he saw the celestial glory and saw some surprising people within, he likewise said, whether in the body or out of the body, I could not tell. Or picture Lehi, when he has his vision in the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon, he says, methought I saw God. 
sitting upon his throne, surrounded by numberless concourses of angels. And centuries later, when Alma the Younger had a similar experience, he used identical language. He says, I, me thought I saw, even as, my father Le- as our father Lehi saw, God and these angels. But me thought. And skeptics would say, what do you mean me thought? You don't know if you had the vision or not? Well, you, don't, you can't tell if you were in the body. Was this physically present or just some spiritual vision? Ah, forget the whole thing. Well, they, they probably already have. I have met more than a few skeptics that, that attack the first vision, for example, simply because there are multiple accounts of it. And what Joseph said in 1832 is a little different than what he said in 1836. And what he said to this audience was a little different than what he said to that one. And like, well, yeah, audience is going to determine some of that. Oh, but here, this seems to be, this is a a clear contradiction. Like, well, is it? Maybe. It obviously is the way you read it. I don't see the contradiction in the same way you do. But let me ask you this. Do you believe in the possibility of visions at all? And nine times out of ten, they'll say, well, no. I said, oh, so the problem is not that he, there were multiple accounts. The problem was that there were any accounts at all. And you'd still be skeptical, even if there was only one version. Hmm. It's your lack of faith in the, in the possibility. That's become your new premise. So, of course, your conclusion is going to be what it is. Me, on the other hand... I've, I love the sixth art, no, seventh article of faith. I love them all. But the seventh is the one that talks about things that we believe in as far as spiritual gifts are concerned. And visions, it's right there at the top of the list. Visions and revelation and prophecy and, and gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues and so forth. We believe those things. Now, have I experienced those things? All of them except Visions. I can sign off with personal experience on every other one. But I've never had a vision. And I'm okay with that. God's given me enough evidence in other ways. But as one who can't speak to personal experience, but one who studies the way Paul talked about it here, the way Joseph Smith talked about it in BNC 137, the way Lehi talked about it, and the way Alma the Younger talked about it, I am willing to cut them all as much slack as they need. If it's so outside the norm of regular human experience that you can't even tell if it's bodily or not, and I think I'm seeing this, but what is going on here? I mean, the way that the vision of the third king of the third heaven came to Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon. This is section 76, the vision where they saw actually a, a series of six visions, including the telestial, terrestrial, and celestial kingdoms. In that one, Joseph would describe what he saw, and then Sidney would give second witness. Yeah, that is what I see. And then Sidney would kind of pass the baton. They were like leapfrogging each other. And Sidney would describe what he saw in the next vision, and Joseph was like, yes, that's what I see too. It's like it's making sense. It's becoming clear. But there's something powerful about this experience on Paul's part. And he's invoking it as evidence of his apostolic authority. I am a witness of the resurrection. He said back in 1 Corinthians 15, I am a witness of the goal in all of this, the third heaven. I've been there. 
caught up. I've seen paradise. And I'm trying to bring it back down to earth. I'm trying to create a Zion here with you, if you'll let me. But you have to trust my authority. In verse 5 and 6, he says, Of such and one will I glory. Yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Which again is a little tongue-in-cheek. He's sharing these spiritual experiences as humbly as he possibly can. He's not calling attention to himself. I know, but I can't tell you everything that I know. I can be crystal clear on my infirmities. I can count up the number of stripes that I've suffered at the, at the Roman whip. But of these ineffable, unspeakable spiritual things, oh, I'm going <laughs> to create a, a third person and speak of myself in those terms and glory in him instead of in me, quote-unquote. Number seven and eight, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Again, there he is, trying to stay humble when the revelations, the visions, the experiences he's had, the miraculous things he's been a party to. Oh, those things do, do exalt me above measure. But lest I let it all go to my head, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. Now this is a very famous passage regarding Paul. But it's also a bit infamous because he mentions this thorn in the flesh and doesn't explain what it is, which has led to all kinds of speculation for centuries. And some have wondered, oh, this thorn in the flesh, was that just more persecution and, and physical tribulation that he's been through? He just listed a bunch of that. Maybe. Uh, could the thorn in the flesh have been some kind of oh, phys physical malady himself? Some have talked about, could it have been some kind of speech impediment? If he's better in writing than in speaking, hmm, possible. Did he stutter? Was there a struggle there? Some have suggested, is it still some kind of vision problem? that he was blinded on the road to Damascus. And with Ananias' help, he regained his sight. But was it all the way? <laughs> was it just spiritual sight? Is he still struggling with physical sight? Is that the problem? Was it some kind of temptation? I mean, he took the escape route every time that it was, it was given. But, but man, he dealt with things that Yes, temptation is common to man, and it was common to Paul, and I just want to overcome this once and for all. Just remove the thorn. Now, though there's a part of me that really wishes Paul was crystal clear and told us what the thorn was, the bigger part of me is grateful that he didn't, because specificity would limit relevance. I would think, oh, that was his thorn. I don't have that one, so this doesn't apply. But Thorn in general? Oh, yeah, that applies because I've got more than one, as do you, I'm sure. And what is your thorn in the flesh? Well, it will be specific to you, just like mine are specific to me. But I, too, have pled repeatedly with the Lord. Please remove it. I don't want this trial or I don't want this temptation. I don't want this weakness or I don't want this this struggle, whatever the thorn might be for you, have you besought the Lord to take it away? 
and I'm sure you have. Notice Jesus himself had a thorn in the flesh as he knelt in the garden of Gethsemane. And again, three times he besought his Father in heaven, please remove the cup. Or in this analogy, please pull out the thorn. But the Father left it in Jesus. And here the Lord is leaving it in Paul. But did you catch Paul's perspective? It seems, if it's only been three times, that he's come to grips and come to terms with that and not asked a fourth or a fifth or a sixth. I guess this thorn is permanent. I guess I'll always have this affliction. I'll be dealing with this temptation for the rest of my life. It's an addictive sin after all. Or this is a, an ailment that has no cure. This is the new norm for me. Well, there's even power in establishing the new norm and accepting it. Radical acceptance and just, okay, if this is what it's going to be from here on out, so be it. What does the Lord want me to do about that? I'm going to stop asking him to change things. I'm going to ask him to change me instead in terms of my ability to cope with all of this. And how did Paul learn to cope with it? He saw its purpose. One of which was to keep him from being exalted above measure. I mean, I have been so blessed with the abundance of revelations that without a thorn in the flesh, I might not think I had any flesh at all. Whether in the body or out of the body, oh no, I'm completely out of the body and I'm living in heaven more than I'm living in earth. But nope, that, ugh, that pain I feel is a constant reminder. I haven't been exalted yet. So I guess there's still more work to be done. There's still cause to be humble. There's still cause to rely upon the Redeemer. And that's the best thing ever. If I could simply remove the thorn and be done with it, am I done with Jesus? Am I done needing his help? Or, like we saw in Romans, was the broken law just to shut my mouth and convince me I needed Jesus all along? Was my time in the pit <laughs> to cure me of my self-sufficiency, introduce me to the ropes of the Redeemer, and not only climb out of the pit with his help, but go ascend the mountaintops, which is what he was after all along. You see, to me, there's this powerful realization on Paul's part that I hope we will follow, follow his example. And if this is not going away, if this is the new norm, is it giving me a constant cause to rely on Christ? If so, then there is a rose in this thorn bush. And it is bringing beauty through my ashes. Think about the way Jacob said it in the Book of Mormon. Chapter 4 of Jacob, verse 7. Nevertheless, the Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by His grace and His great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. You see that? Without that weakness... I wouldn't trust in His grace. I wouldn't know that I needed any of it. Or, even more famous, Ether 12, 27. And if men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. And that's what He'd been doing for Paul. Oh, just look at, the, at your side. There's a thorn there. 
But if they'll come, I'll show them that weakness. And I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. And my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. And oh, if Paul had ever had the chance to meet Moroni, that would have been one of his favorite verses, I'm sure. It describes, in fact, exactly what Paul felt about his thorn, as shown in the next two verses. Verse 9 and 10, He said unto me, The Lord did, that is, as he was pleading with him to remove the thorn. The Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for thee. Can you see Paul and Moroni as parallel prophets? My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And once Paul realized that, that because of his own weakness, it allowed God to show his strength, it convinced Paul to rely upon the Lord's power rather than his own arm of flesh, once that dawned on him, everything changed. His attitude toward adversity completely shifted. And Paul was able to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for being willing to learn the hard way and then being willing to teach us the hard truth. That it is through our weakness that God's power is made manifest. No wonder he wanted the weak and the simple, the unlearned and the despised to serve him. Because his light will come shining through all the cracks in our earthen vessel. Paul got it. <laughs> well, we need to get it as well. That's what will allow us to glory in our infirmities, as Paul did. Well, verse 11, I am become a fool in glorying. <laughs> That's probably what you think anyway. Like, this fool is excited that he's suffered so much? This guy's crazy. Well, if I'm a fool in glorying, it's your fault. Ye have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended of you. I shouldn't have to vouch for myself. You should be testifying of me. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. And again, those chiefest apostles are those pseudo-saints, those, those super apostles, those super missionaries that, they, that people are claiming others to be. No, 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 no. I'm nothing behind at all. Not one whit, he said earlier. Though I really am nothing compared to God. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And I am grateful for the mighty deeds and the signs and wonders and the patience in affliction that I have seen from apostles of the Lord in my day. Those are signs of an apostle that are as convincing to me as anything else I've seen. He then says in verse 13, For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches? except it be that I myself was not burdensome to you. We're back to that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't burden you. I wouldn't take your money. I provided for myself. And, and now you think you're less than other churches? No, you're not. 
He says, forgive me this wrong. And I'm sure he said that ironically. Like, oh, I'm so sorry that I wouldn't take your money. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. So I'm ready to come back on a third trip, and I'm not going to take your money then either, okay? I want to be high yield, low maintenance. And then I love what he says next to them. For I seek not yours, but you. You catch the difference there? I'm not after yours as in your stuff. I'm not after your material goods. I I don't, don't want you to provide for me. That's not what I'm after. What am I seeking? You. Your benefit. Ultimately, your consolation and salvation. That's why I am giving you everything I've got. I seek not yours, but you. And then an interesting analogy from the family. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. And again, I'm your, your father in the faith. I'm your parent in Christianity. Again, I'm the, the father matchmaker trying to watch, it, watch out for his daughter's virtue. And so you don't have to pay me. I'm, I'm paying you. To say, say to your kids, you don't have to cover my expenses. I'm here to cover yours. That's what parents do, okay? And then he says, again, beautiful phrase, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. This is one of my favorite examples of Paul's penchant for wordplay. But what is he playing with? Well, spend and be spent. I'm not asking you to spend anything on me. Low maintenance. I will spend everything on you. In fact, I'll be spent for you until I've got nothing left to give. And then that last irony. Again, some wordplay. Unfortunately, the more abundantly I love you, the less you love me. That that had to be the hardest irony of all for him to admit. The more I prove to you my love by not taking from you and only giving, 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 the less love you want to give to me in return. That doesn't make sense to me. I remember, I, I've told you this before, I proposed to my wife for seven months before she finally agreed to marry me. I'm an acquired taste. Maybe that's why I make these lessons so long. It's going to take you that long to finally, okay, I, I guess I learned something. He's, I guess he's okay. But in her case, as we were dating, I, there were times I just wondered, why? What, what's wrong with me? And what, what does she not see? And I remember one day I was doing the dishes. And that's often a time for me to think. And as I was doing the dishes, sadly, my thoughts turned into something of a personal pity party. I was the only one invited, but I was the only one that would, would have come anyway. And there I was, sitting in my, or washing dishes in my solitude, and kind of complaining to myself, like, what, what's, what's up with her? And what, what's taking her so long? And, what? and at, what, at one point in this conversation with myself, I said something that the Spirit must have overheard, because he responded to it. The thought that, that ascended, I asked, why doesn't she love me the way I love her? 
which seems to be exactly what Paul is asking here. The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Why don't you love me as much as I love you? And the moment I thought it, the Spirit came rushing in to say, now you know how I feel. And that was a jolting revelation. Because it hurt to love more and to be loved less. But sadly, that describes God's feelings towards us perfectly. He will always love us more than we love him. Can you picture the Lord saying that to us? Just like Paul did. The more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I am happy to report that my wife has caught up with me. And we love each other equally. I pray someday to catch up to God. And love him as much as he loves me. What Paul says next, verse 16. But be it so. He's kind of resigned to his fate. Fine, it is what it is. I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them whom I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. And did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. What Paul is trying to say there, I'm not, I'm not trying to burden, I'm just high yield, low maintenance. I didn't make a gain of you, neither did, neither did Titus. And yet you accepted him. He rejoiced in him and he rejoiced in you. What is it? Why couldn't you rejoice in me as I rejoice in you? And again, I'm not saying this in some self-serving way. I'm not jealous for my sake. I'm jealous for yours. Because if you won't accept me as an apostle, then you will not take seriously the message of salvation that, I'm, that I've been sent to share. It's just like God as a jealous God. It's not for his sake, it's for ours. Because if, you don't, can't, if we don't believe in God, then how can he bless us as only he can? No, everything Paul has done has been for their edifying. And we've had plenty of evidence of that. So he says in concluding this chapter, verse 20 and 21, For I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. It's like we both have certain hopes for one another. I was hoping that you would live up to divine expectation, and I'm afraid that when I get there, you won't be. And meanwhile, you were hoping that I'd be just as kind as, as I normally am in person, and yet you're forcing me to come down strong and be as bold as I typically am in writing, and to be that bold in, in presence as well. What he really worries about, he describes in the next line or two. I fear lest we see each other in the wrong way. And I fear lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults. What a list. Paul loved his lists of sins. This is a fascinating one because they all show marks of division. It's all evidence of contention 
which was one of the underlying problems that was splitting apart the Corinthian saints. He'd been working on that for two letters now, okay? And, and he's afraid he'll still be seeing it when he comes again. Another thing he fears is lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. You get a sense of his three fears mentioned in those verses? I fear that we're not going to see what we'd hoped for in one another. I fear that there'll still be disputation and contention and everything else that President Nelson just condemned last conference. And I fear that I'll have cause to mourn if you didn't feel sufficient godly sorrow to mourn for your own sins and repent of them. That's what I'm worried about as a missionary. Can you picture him writing this second letter? Wondering if he'll need to write a third? Wondering if, if he'll need to return a third time? What will I find? Will I find true disciples or former saints? Well, his final words then come in chapter 13. And it's a short oh, capstone to these two beautiful letters we spent the last month plus studying. He starts it in verse 1, This is the third time I am coming to you. Which again is why we think that 2 Corinthians must be at least 3 Corinthians. Just like 1 Corinthians must have been at least 2 Corinthians since then he talks about a previous time he'd written already. Well, whatever number this is, here Paul calls it the third time he's coming. And then he invokes the Old Testament law of witnesses to suggest why he keeps writing and keeps coming. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So have I come enough and written enough to establish these words? Establish my street cred? Establish the reality of the resurrection? Establish the gospel of Jesus Christ? Ah, I told you before, he said and foretell you, as if I were present the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, oh, I will not spare, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. You see what he's saying there? Do you need me to come again? How many repetitions do you need? How many additional witnesses must the Lord send? Whether in terms of additional people, Titus, Timothy, others, this brother that I haven't named, or how many additional visits from the same messenger to keep confirming the truth of what I've already said. How, how does God establish his doctrine? Well, he says it repeatedly. He gives multiple witnesses, and we can bank on those things we have heard over and over from the servants of God. What he's worried about, like he says at the end there, is just if I had to come again as a fourth witness, for example, I'm not going to be able to spare. I won't be able to hold back. I'll have to be the, the mean disciplinarian. If you won't humble yourself, will I have to come and humble you? If you won't let your hearts be pricked, will, will they have to be cut asunder? 
that's, that's not how I want to come. But I'll come and give you whatever proof you need that Christ is indeed speaking through me. But he also says in verse 4 through 6, speaking of Jesus, for though he was crucified through weakness, and there's Jesus meekly allowing himself to be killed, though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. He rose triumphant from the grave. Let's get back to that. I'm a witness of the resurrection after all. And we try to do the same. We're crucified in our own way through our own weakness. And yet here we are living by the power of God. That's what he says next. We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So how's this for some parting advice? I love what Paul is saying here. Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. That's what Paul's been doing this whole time, trying to prove himself to them. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, at least if you'll let him in, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. We have let the Lord in. But think about the way he put it there in the middle. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Take advantage of your weekly introspection at the sacrament table. Give yourself a long, hard look. Not just in the glass darkly. No, <laughs> wipe the mirror clean. And try to look at yourself the way the Lord does, with an all-searching eye. Don't sugarcoat things. Don't try to rationalize or justify. Truly examine yourself. Assess your faith. Measure your testimony. How am I doing? If I still recognize weakness, which we all will, is it weakness that is learning to rely upon the strength of the Lord? If I still see flaws and thorns and everything else, is it helping me make progress? Or am I falling further and further into my sins? Often I will do this with people when they're struggling in their faith and we're having one-on-one -on -one conversations. I will try to help them examine themselves whether they really be in the faith. We'll talk about how deep the cracks in the foundation go. Is it just surface level, church issues? Is it down deeper? Do you still believe in Jesus? Is it deeper down to the point of bedrock itself? Do you believe in God? Let's examine. Because if, if you think it's just a, a, a sliver on a surface level, and you're just asking for a little help with a Band-Aid, we've got to know if, if there's cancer down deep, or I'm wasting your time. Or let's go through the fourth article of faith, and is your faith really in the Lord Jesus Christ, or has it been in something else? As you're moving down and up, the fourth article of faith, we've talked about that before. What stage of faith are you in? Are you in creation, or fall, or atonement? And in what areas? There is so much self-examination that needs to take place to see if we really are in the faith and different aspects of my faith. And is it a, a personal or a communal faith? Am I holding on to mere social conversion when spiritual conversion is no longer present? 
there are really important questions we need to be asking ourselves to, to self-assess whether or not we really are in the faith. Because a lot of people are struggling. And I fear that we, they weren't sufficiently self-aware. We, we kind of lulled ourselves into a false sense of security, like, well, I'm active, isn't that enough? Well, time will tell. Examine yourself, and we'll see really where your faith, how strong it is. Paul then says in verse 7 through 9, Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. So here's some more fatherly advice. Not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. And I don't care what you think about us. If you think we're reprobates, fine. Just don't be a reprobate yourself. Be honest. Don't do evil. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. God is always striving to move us in a better direction. So even if you think we're getting in the way, well, I'll leave you and God, I'll leave you in His perfect hands, and it will all be for the truth. For we are glad, He says, when we are weak and ye are strong. And this also we wish, even your perfection. That's all we've ever wished for. It's all we've ever worked for. And so if you think we're weak, fine. Then please be strong. If you don't think I'm a true messenger, so be it. I pray you'll accept the true message. Hold on to the faith that we have delivered. Lay hold upon the truth. It will set you free. It will bring you to God it will perfect you. And that's all we've ever hoped. The word there is so beautiful. We've talked about perfection before, about teleos, something way off in the distance. Uh, be therefore perfect in those ways. It's a beautiful Greek word for this perfection. This one uses a different one, a different word that actually means something closer to preparing or equipping or making fit or making adjustments so things work the way they should. It's really interesting. That's the kind of perfection that they've been wishing. All I've been doing in coming to Corinth and writing letters to the Corinthians is pulling out my screwdriver and kind of tinkering with things and trying to fix that and trying to adjust that and just get you closer and closer to, the, to perfection in Christ. Some other translations actually render this phrase, that you will become mature or that ye will be made complete, or my favorite one, that ye may be fully restored. Imagine all the tweaking, all the adjusting that re is required if you're trying to restore an old engine, for example, or restore a full car, or to restore a full person. Remember the way section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants starts? The restoration God is most interested in is not the restoration of the gospel or the restoration of the church or the restoration of the priesthood. The restoration Jesus himself talks about in DNC 84.2 is the restoration of my people. He's the one tinkering. He's the one adjusting until that engine just purrs. Until our our souls can smoothly walk the path of covenant. 
that's, that's what apostles are after. More than anything, no matter what people think of them, their service is focused on our restoration, to be restored to a right relationship with God, a reminder of who we really are. And then Paul brings this letter to a close. Verse 10, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. There we are back to that. Like, yep, I'd rather do this from a distance so I can, I can be strong, I can be clear, and then hopefully when I'm in your presence, I can be calm and collected and just loving and kind and congratulations, you're all doing great, okay? But if you don't, then yes, I'll have to be sharper when I return. Think back to section 121 about reproving betimes with sharpness, but then showing more love than ever to prove that you really are on their side. Think about section 50 of the Doctrine and Covenants and its focus on edification over anything else. That's what Paul is after here. I'm not trying to destroy through my sharpness. I'm trying to edify by being clear in my calls to repent. And so, verse 11 through 14, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. And again, it's this be properly adjusted. Be restored to your right function. Think about all the areas you've been falling short. And just let's tweak a few things. Please be perfect. In the meantime, be of good comfort. Think about everything Paul has said about affliction, especially in this second letter. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Think about all that Paul has taught about internal divisions and trying to become one. And the God of love and peace shall be with you. I'll greet one another with an holy kiss, or JST, and holy salutation. And speaking of salutations, I'll send you one from a distance. All the saints salute you. We are in this together, after all. Hopefully provoking one another to continue progressing towards God and becoming more and more faithful and like Him every step of the way. And what will you need to get there? Paul's final words here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Paul has invoked the entire Godhead, all three members, because we'll need all that each one provides. And notice the division of labor. I, I love this verse, this ending. From God the Father, what will he give us? Love. He is the Father of mercies, after all. From Jesus, what will we receive? Grace. Enabling power. And what will we receive from the Holy Ghost? Communion. He's the one that makes us one. He's the one that helps us resonate on that same frequency. Communion with each other and with God. Oh, we talk about the gifts of the wise men. <laughs> well, how about the, the, this gift from the greatest three that have ever, ever existed? Love and grace and communion is exactly what God the Father and Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost want to give. And Paul is commending all of that from them to us. 
well, my friends, Second Corinthians has come to its close. And off to Galatians next week. But can we, by way of review, just repeat some of the beautiful phrases Paul has given us in this week's study? Ponder each of these phrases. In fact, if any of them really stand out, I'd love to read them in the comments. Anything that you feel like you want to spend more time pondering. Their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. To their power and beyond their power. The fellowship of the ministering. To prove the sincerity of your love. For your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now therefore perform the doing of it. I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. God loveth a cheerful giver. Always having all sufficiency in all things. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do not be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Cut off occasion from them which desire occasion. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Whether in the body, I cannot tell, or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I seek not yours, but you. I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. And finally, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. My dear friends, I pray that our self-examination will be eye-opening, that we will feel godly sorrow for whatever aspects of that examination bring up room for improvement. I pray we'll have a soft enough heart to offer it to God in its brokenness so he can give us healing as only he can. Examine your faith. Time will tell if it's strong enough to see us through the latter days. I pray that it will. I testify of the Lord of whom Paul testified. I bear my witness of the Lord of the resurrection the way, the truth, and the life. I am grateful for his strength, which more than makes up for my weakness. In fact, 
having come to know him through my weakness. I can glory even in that, as my ultimate goal is to glory in him.